Welcome to The Snapshot. We are joined by Glenn Jones, principal game designer for Marvel Snap. He is the guy in charge of balance. So when your favorite card got nerfed, that was his fault. He did that specifically despite you. Uh, you like that. You know who I'm talking about. Everyone who's a Thanos lover, this is the guy. If you want to direct your vitriol <laughs> somewhere, at him on Twitter. I know he loves that. No, please don't do any of what I just said. But Glenn Jones, principal game designer for Marvel Snap, the guy whose decisions are most directly impactful to what we do, I think by a pretty large margin, I would I would suggest uh, we can get into that later. Welcome to the snapshot. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, long time listener. First time guest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Glenn, I want to sort of set the foundation for our listeners and get a bit of a background and a history of your journey as a card game designer and maybe even something that predates that. How did you get into card games? Were you a player mm -hmm. beforehand? Just sort of give us the sort of the, the lore, the genesis story of Glenn Jones that has now become this sort of enigmatic sure. character over at Second Dinner. I know, you know, I think I mostly know you through discord posts right all of the answers to yeah. all of the questions i have in marvel snap yeah. are somebody asking a question to discord and a screenshot of the glenn jones answer the the sort of uh, the all-knowing person over there at second dinner but let's get that origin story yeah sure it's uh i'll try and do it quick it gets a little bit lengthy depending on how you want to tell it but yeah uh i started playing card games in middle school like sixth grade uh, my first card game was magic the gathering which is a little unusual most people kind of find their way to magic second or third um but back then there weren't a lot of options like magic was the card game you know pokemon wasn't even like a thing yet really uh so i wound up playing other games from magic which kind of changed a lot about how i, I thought about card games and magic was kind of like always there uh, i played magic i like to say pseudo competitively uh, i lost to plenty of relatively famous people so that was a lot of fun uh, i played in a few pro tours didn't do very well in any of those uh so yeah and then from there, I, I played other games also like at a pretty competitive level. I am the uh, the reigning runner-up world champion of the Yu Yu Hakusho uh, collectible card game. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, was there, it had how, one, many, how many one worlds world were there? I was about to there was one. <laughs> hey, scoreboard, it counts. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Lost lost the coin flip. That's how it goes. Um, ah. Yeah, and I, I played played a bunch of card games from there. Like I played the Dragon Ball Z card game. Uh, I played Inuyasha, Yu-Gi-Oh. I played Yu-Gi-Oh pretty competitively. I won a fair amount of uh, money playing Yu-Gi-Oh and Magic. There was a like really, really uh, fertile like cash tournament mm -hmm. scene in Florida, which is where I grew up. Uh, so I would travel to events, and they would do like Magic Saturday, Yu-Gi-Oh Sunday. So I'd like sleep over and just play both tournaments and do that. Um, from there, I play. I wound up playing also pseudo competitive poker uh, for a little while that I was I was better at because I played low low stakes and eventually I kind of hit a crossroads where I was like you know am I going to start adding to my resume or am I going to like move to Vegas and try and get a lot better at this game uh, and I decided that that last course seemed fraught uh, with peril uh, so I made my parents slightly happier and decided to go into a career in games uh, I reported on the Star City Games live uh, tournament circuit that was like my first big job in games but before that I did uh, freelance content for the World of Warcraft TCG, uh, where I was also a pseudo-competitive player. I finished, I think, top 16 of Worlds twice in that game, uh, but I didn't I didn't play in a lot of tournaments because I was covering the vast majority of them. Um, Worlds was like the one that I always played in, basically. So yeah, 
that was pretty much that. Like from there, I was into Magic with Star City Games. Uh, I was there for a few years building up the tournament circuit uh, that still does some some that still is in effect today, but the broadcasting and all that has kind of changed uh, pretty substantially, yeah. obviously. Uh, but from there, I moved into uh, distribution. I worked at Peach State Hobby Distribution, which is a gaming distributor. They supply local game stores with uh, big box retail and stuff like that, um, or wholesale, I should say. And I didn't like that very much at all. I was not very good at sales uh, for myriad reasons. Uh, it was just not a game I was super interested in playing, I guess is the easiest way to describe it. So I wound up deciding to move to Seattle to try and one day get a job at Wizards of the Coast. I knew a lot of people in Seattle, and I thought, you know, I, I know enough about Magic here. At some point, some job will open up uh, that I can get. I had actually already been rejected for one before I made that decision, but the process of applying for the job was itself interesting enough that it made me kind of really want to pursue it more strongly. Uh, and then while I was preparing to move, I actually got called and they hired me for that job uh, because the person they initially had hired, their contract had ended and they decided to take a different role still within the company. Um, so very lucky for me. Uh, I like to say I've gotten lucky many, many times uh, in my career. I, I could chart my career certainly on how much of it was pure fortune versus merit. Uh, and it starts being a lot more merit based later on, I think. But that early stuff, tons, tons of fortune. So yeah, uh, that worked out really well. Yeah. And I was on the editing team at Wizards for uh, two to three years. I think it was about three years uh, working on the Magic card game. I designed on some sets while I was doing that. that kind of let you moonlight on the design team over there. So I did that mostly for commander sets. And then they spun up a mobile game that was pretty new called Spellslingers. Uh, well, eventually it was called Spellslingers. It was called something else for a super long time. And I really liked the idea of that. It seemed like a big swing. It was the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, you know, if it doesn't work out, that's fine. But if it does work out, it might be huge. So that's the kind of place I like to put my bets. Uh, so I tried to kind of help the Spellslingers team out and position myself to be like a you know, producer and editor on that team. Uh, and my work wound up turning me into a game designer on that team. Uh, so from there, I started designing magic products and Spellslinger sets at the same time and eventually shifted over to full-time magic once the uh, the commander kind of audience and wizard's desire to recognize and build products for that audience really exploded. Uh, and that was, I was put in charge of kind of maintaining the integrity of all of those product lines, making sure no one's stepping on each other's toes, like the person who's able to look at all of the sets and keep them and keep track of them. Uh, I was colloquially referred to as the commander commander during that time. Uh, which was a lot of fun. I did that pretty much until I left. Uh, so for a few years, and we kind of folded in Universes Beyond, which was a new magic endeavor to bring in outside IPs mm -hmm. uh, and adapt them into magic cards. And I did very much the same kind of role for that, being kind of like the one design eye over all of those products to make sure they were experimenting in new directions, not just that was one of the differences. Like Commander, we kind of had, you know, a unified philosophy of what makes great commander products and making sure that people don't, you know, maybe push the envelope too much or push it in interesting ways. But Universe Beyond is very new. So we were like, all right, this product's going to try it this way. This one's going to try it this way. Like, let's see how it goes uh, and make sure we have things that we can measure and things we can refer backwards to. So it was a really interesting time to be at Wizards and a really cool role. I was uniquely suited to that role as someone who watches way too much television uh, and reads tons of books and comics. So if I didn't know an IP, I knew how to learn it in like inside of two weeks, um, which was a lot of fun. I worked on a lot of IPs that I had really no foreknowledge of pretty much. Like, you know, I knew 
who Optimus Prime was, but I didn't know Transformers very deeply. That was like a huge dive I did. I knew like four Street Fighter characters had to do a huge dive on that product. You're not um, like a Fortnite like guy. That. You didn't you didn't just naturally know what no. a chug jug was. No, I, I learned it all. <laughs> the Yeah, but one one I did know quite well was uh, Lord of the Rings, which I was the yep. set design lead for. Uh, and that product released a few few months ago and very proud of that. Uh, kind of, I think, like my magnum opus at Wizards, so to speak. And I've still got products I, coming out for another four years, I guess. So we'll see those as they as they emerge. Wow. I wanted to jump into the Lord of the Rings thing, actually, because that's been like, as far as I understand it, I'm still like a little bit entwined with Magic Twitter. Uh, it's been like really well received for the most part in terms of like how it was designed and what it was made for. And then it's also people trying to figure out how the one ring happened. And as far as I know, as far as I know, this is a Marvel Snap podcast, but I, I like I cannot yeah. resist asking. So when you got when you got the the design for this super incredible iconic card, was it like we have to make this strong? Like, how, how, how does the design process work for something like that? And I'm going to tie this into Marvel Snap because there are a lot of iconic characters yeah. in Marvel Snap. How do you tie how re relatable, how like pop culture relevant, how unique and iconic something is to the design in terms of power. Like if Spider-Man yeah. in Marvel Snap wasn't Spider-Man, would it have been a three, four, but it's Spider-Man. So it's a three, five. Does that, is there, a, what are the considerations that go into that? Yeah, that's a good question. And I do think like my work on universes beyond kind of really directly ties into what I do with Snap now and why I think I was a, a great candidate for the role with Marvel Snap, because I just already had a ton of experience translating these things in different directions. Um, and yeah, the One Ring, like, you know, in the canon of that story, it's the most powerful thing in the story, yeah. uh, which is kind of also awkward because you don't really see it do anything, right? Like it's, so you can tell people like, what's the most powerful object in Middle Earth? And people will be like, oh, it's obviously the, the One Ring. We all know that. And it's like, cool, what do you think the One Ring does? And they'll be like, it turns some people invisible uh, and it's really scary. <laughs> like that's, that's like, you know, the majority of their understanding of it. Uh, and if you go deep in the lore, there are some other powers, but even those are like pretty massive. Like, oh, it can control like other ring bears. Like, what does that even mean? Like, how does it do that? Uh, so it's yeah, like, amp, one of the things right? we Kind of, like, yeah. The way I understood it is like, it's, it's, it's an amp and whoever you are, it scales off of you. It's like an exponent. That is one of the like presiding beliefs, but there isn't a lot that's okay. like canonically isolated. Like, yeah, this is how it works. Here's the blueprints to the one ring kind of thing. So that was yeah. one of the fun things was at, at Wizards, we do a thing called hole filling, which is, you know, we'll ask like ev everyone in the company who wants to participate in such an activity, like, hey, design a card based on like this thing that we have in the set. Uh, and for Universe Beyond products, uh, I made sure I was only doing that in specific spots because obviously tons, you'll get tons of stuff if you just do it for everything. And uh, you'll just lose more time sorting through it than you would by uh, designing it. But the One Ring was one of the things, yeah, where I sent it out, you know, a couple of times and I wound up with, you know, like 45, 60 different cards uh, like everyone just has a totally different idea of like what is the most satisfying expression of this card. Um, and for some people being in-game powerful wasn't part of that expression, right? Like, and also, you know, some people just don't necessarily design to be in-game powerful by nature. So yeah, it, that was a really complex thing to, to determine. But ultimately we decided, yes, we want this to be a strong card. We want it to be one of the strongest cards in the set. If you look through the set and think the one ring is one of the weaker rares, that doesn't feel right. That feels very wrong. Um, so yeah, we wound up pursuing an artifact that we could stand behind as like, yes, this is super strong. Like you look at this, you know, it can go into a lot of your decks. It's really exciting and appealing. Um, and yeah, we definitely hit a little high on the target, I would say. 
but not as high as maybe people think. Like we want that card okay. to be strong. Like it's it's supposed to be good. You're not supposed to think it's not good. Like that's so. Very, like when you're making a card key. like that, you're like you're not saying we're designing a card that's going to warp the modern format, but you are saying no. we're designing a staple. Yeah, like our our approach to modern, the set was going to be legal and modern, which is a magic format for all the Marvel Snap listeners. So it's a big a big magic format. Everything is a lot of things are legal, like most of the new every every new content essentially. Um, so we our approach to that was really like make things strong, but not like be sure how they would hit in some cases because okay. if you're too sure, it's probably going to be too strong. We can't really test everything. Um, so, so we were we were making in. a lot of half card shots. To tie that into Marvel Snap then, right? Yes. When you look at the redesign of a card like Spider-Man, who is perhaps the iconic Marvel superhero, like mm -hmm. for a certain genre of 90s kid, before the MCU, Spider-Man was the guy. It was Spider-Man and like arguably Wolverine, who were the flagship characters on Marvel. And... Yep. Is there is there some desire to just be like, look, these cards have to be relevant or we want them to be relevant. And how does that impact? Like when you're I'm, I'm going to let's assume a similar process, like you're looking at various designs. Do, do you to what degree is we want this card to be iconic and we want it to be good, but mm -hmm. you don't want to hit it too high. Right. Obviously, if you made Spider-Man a three six, that would be hitting too high. Right. And yeah. if you made like Loki's like the most popular MCU like show right now by a pretty significant margin, I believe. And if you like, you, I, frankly, I think you might have hit it too high on on him. But that's that's beside the point, right? Like you definitely buffed him from three, four to three, five late in the process. Right. Because mm -hmm. and how, to, to what degree is that because he's Loki and to what degree is that is that because you think the card needed the power? Yeah. It's, it's an interesting balance of things. And in some ways, it's kind of a slight converse of what you're saying. So you're saying, like, is our motivation because it's popular, we should make it strong? No, that okay. is not, not our motivation. However, because it's popular, people are going to want to play it. And that means that it should be rewarding to play with. And strength is one of the ways the card can be rewarding to play with. So in that way, strength is the reward for the players who are fans of the card. So taking the example of Spider-Man, like let's say if I we did the exact same Spider-Man rework and he was a 3-2, it's like, okay, well now people will be very excited to play Spider-Man and they'll play him once and be like, oh, this is horrible. I don't like that. I love Spider-Man. Why did they do this? Um, so yeah, we don't want that to be the experience, right? So we want to find a target where we're like, this card's fun. It's exciting. When you decide to play it, you get there and you're even more excited about the choice that you just made. Is just getting there and being like, okay, that was an effective Spider-Man. Like that's that's technically what I like to call that, like you know, an A minus. Like you did very well, but like you want people to get there and be like even happier than they were when they were on the journey, so to speak. Um, so that that's kind of the the approach I take to it. And yeah, it's definitely an imprecise science. Um, one of the things Loki returning to that card, uh, we did buff Loki relatively late, and one of the reasons was, you know, we have a very small group of people that we can kind of mine for understanding of the card and talk to and you know gather opinions on inside of the company. Uh, and so among those people, like it was somewhat mixed. There were people who thought the Loki super awesome card, super awesome effect, very excited about it. Uh, and there were also people who were just like, ah, you know, it's pretty cool. Like I also like moon girl, you know, like that's mm. like that, like that's the, so we have to make sure like, okay, are we too low? Like, cause we don't know what our, internal group is gonna you know like we don't know if we're in the 99th percentile or the like 50th percentile and, like how 
people distribute within our own company around the card. Um, so we're like, okay, what can we afford to put any strength into it? Like, what are we most concerned about? And we ultimately decided like, okay, like I think this one power, like this effect can be a drawback. Like, and it is like, we see how some Loki decks are getting exploited too, is, you know, like you put no yeah. answers to your stuff in your deck. They can't reliably yep. have access to their own answers. So Loki's not just a clean, like, you know, above rate card. Like there is both pull and push and pull to that. Um, so that was ultimately we decided, you know, that's enough of a justification for us to explore three five here. And that is a thing we can always change later. Like one of the things that's mm. unique about Marvel Snap versus other CCGs is we do take that live balance MOBA approach of like, you know, something can be strong now. It'll be maybe we can make it weak later, we can make it strong again later. Like we can we can churn things through. You kinda answered my question, but I was because you were you were part of the design team that worked on the one ring, a very powerful color card of magic right now. Um and your role in Marvel Snap, I was just gonna ask if there was any sort of you know, differences in the process when designing for a paper game like Magic, when the ramifications of printing something maybe a bit too powerful can be more punishing versus something like Marvel Snap, where it can be adjusted via an OTA, a patch or something like that. Do you, do you tend to sort of err on the side of pushing design a little bit and toning it back in a game like Marvel Snap? Uh, yes, I don't want to I don't like to think of it as pushing. Certainly, we're will more willing to release things stronger than weaker than we might be with Magic, which can pan out in different directions. Magic, relatively recently, in in the length of time time span of games, I guess it was like you know six years ago or something, like uh, did Fire, where they decided, you know, yeah. we're just going to stop making the bad cards and just try and make as many other cards interesting or strong as we can reasonably do over and over. Uh, and that was great for Magic in some ways had some damage to magic in some other ways as they kind of got their feet under them under the new process. Uh, and now I think the sets are just like magic sets are just awesome right now. I really enjoy them. Uh, I mean, granted huge bias, uh, but the with snap, like, yeah, I don't have to be necessarily as careful, but at the same time, I'm not interested in being cavalier about it. Like it's not a good look if we're just like releasing cards and then nerfing them like a month later, that's not what we want to do. It just isn't, yeah. not, it's not fun for us. It's not interesting. It's not rewarding for the consumer. Like I take that relationship pretty seriously like we're not here to just do that over and over if we were going to do that we would also just not bother playtesting the cards really because we wouldn't need to pay attention to that uh but no we want to try and get as close to the mark as possible but when we're deciding between like you know should we you know air low or air high we should we generally are going to probably air towards high if it's reasonable because we can always correct a card from being too high and we can always correct a card from being too low as well, but it's less, it's very unsatisfying to get a new card and find out it's bad. That's a negative experience. So we want to have that experience as infrequently as possible. Whereas getting a card and finding out it's too good, that can create a negative like metagame, but it's not a negative experience. People aren't you know, like playing Loki for the first time and being like, man, it's so good. This is so frustrating. Like, no, they're like very excited. I mean, even the day- I kind released, of was like that actually. <laughs> yeah, but well, I'm like, speaking okay, of people generally. <laughs> What are they? But, what are they doing over here? The first time I saw a collector get that big, I was like, "Oh God, <laughs> what are they doing?" I was laughing, but I don't know if it was good laughing. I will say, right. I wanted to jump but off even, that. I want to say, even for Continue. a player like Sorry. you, like, is your first is your first thought like this is a nightmare, or I wish this wasn't happening, or is your first thought I wonder how I'm going to make that collector smaller? I wonder how I'm going to kill that collector. So I'm well, willing to bet most people are in that latter camp. Like that's my the first way thought with Loki excitement. was, oh God, how do I beat this? Right. Mm -hmm. 
And then once I got past, oh God, how do I beat this? I realized that a lot of the answers for, oh God, how do I beat this? Are like super linear over the top stuff that I really don't like. And that's when I was like, oh man, oh God, oh God. So like, it was like a, it was like a two, it was like a two stage thing, right? I do think, I do think it's coming down now for whatever that's worth. I think people have figured out like, okay, look, this is not unbeatable. It's just unbeatable. If we were doing everything we used to be doing, like, uh, there's never been less Shang Chi's in the meta. There's never been less, uh, basically most of the tech cards in the meta. Like (laughs) it's, it's a really remarkable about face here where like these cards that dominated everything have been entirely recontextualized just by like Loki doing ridiculously unfair stuff back to them. Like, uh, rubber band you know uh i'm rubber your glue everything bounces off me and sticks to you so if i mean you did a little fist pump there that was the goal yeah one of the things we talk about i wouldn't say maybe an explicit goal but one of the things we talk about marvel snap versus other card games is that we like the game the most when it's about doing your own cool thing and measuring it up against your opponent's cool thing and being impressed or excited by whatever happens next right like that's that's really awesome we obviously want answer cards to exist like that's super important to like create dynamism and make some things better than others over time um but at the same time like that's the coolest thing like if if the top decks in the metagame are like sarah versus zabu it's like that's not super thrilling gameplay like it's interesting it's definitely tactical and strategic uh but that's catering to the audience that plays uh card games at like a pretty high level of like wanting to kind of trade these blows and like win these lanes by like two points and manage priority and all those things like the vast majority of our audience is not interested in trying to manage priority on turn six like that's just not a high a high popularity endeavor for for marble snap players i would say uh it's certainly key to playing the game at very high level and i think it's skill intensive and rewarding and i want to continue making cards that reward that uh and because it's not going anywhere like it's definitely just a key factor in the game Mm -hmm. Uh, but at the same point like there was no pressure the other way right like playing the zabu or the saradex with these tech cards like what was the pressure against doing that there was almost none Right, like you, you could just play the deck. I mean, kind of, yeah, but like you could just still play the deck and just have a middling range of matchups. And if you're a lot better than your opponent, you can kind of just count on that to get you through. It's sort of like I, I like to use analogies all the time, you know, but like what if you could just play chess up a pawn? Like that'd be great. Like you'd lose some games, sure, but you're going to just win the vast majority. If you could play poker and always have king, queen, offsuit, or suited or whatever, that's great. You're going to win a ton. You might lose sometimes, but you're going to be very far ahead a lot of the time. And that's kind of how it feels like when a deck like, you know, the Jund type decks, the, the mid-range decks <laughs> with a lot of answers uh, tend to be strong is like when those are strong, the game can sometimes be a little less exciting. Like those super cool moments where somebody makes a living tribunal for like a hundred or whatever, that just happens way less. Um, and we want to make sure that we get a little bit of both. We want both things happening at all times. Mm. How- See, I actually, I, oh, sorry, I just, I, I keep jumping off of this. I just keep going. Uh, I, I, that's like a really striking thing, I feel like, right? Because for, I saw this comparison on Twitter where they talked about the state of the modern format before Modern Masters mm-hmm. came out to do, or Modern Horizons came out to do a uh, magic analogy, right? It was just a bunch of different decks, ships passing in the night, right? Just your thing versus their thing, and then however it matches up. And that format is remembered really fondly by most players, and then really unfondly by, like, competitive players. And to what degree is that just something that you're explicitly like look that's what we do 
That's what this game is, right? Like, if you want to play it competitively, that's fine. But we're going to design for people to have fun before anything else. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that is my ethos for Snap, certainly, is like, I'm out here to try and make the most fun mobile card game in history. Like, that is my mandate. My mandate is not, like, make the most skill-rewarding mobile card game in history. Like, maybe we're that anyway, because there aren't a lot of mobile card games. Uh, <laughs> but not certainly not mobile-first ones. Um, but yeah, like, that's like that's what, what I'm about. That's what makes, like, ultimately the most players happy. Uh, and skill is just going to be a fundamental part of our game. I actually, like, that's one of the things about Marble Snap that I find super interesting is, like, some of the most skill-intensive stuff is really under the surface. Like, managing priority mm -hmm. is the sort of yep. thing, like, you just, you either, like, find that or somebody tells it to you or whatever. Like, it's not, you know, a core part of the game you just understand really early on. Um, you, most people play, like, you know, a full month before they even really start to think about, like, which cards are going to reveal first and how that matters. And that's because, you know, the Series 1-2 experience is kind of structured to make that matter a little bit less. Um, there are cards, like Electra, obviously, uh, where it comes up. But, like, even Electra is a good example where it's, like, revealing Electra last on turn 6 isn't super important, right? Like, that, <laughs> it just comes up pretty often. Like, when you're playing Electra on turn 6, it's because you're turning off Mojo World or whatever. You don't need to know how reveal order works to understand that that card. Um so yeah, that's that's what I think is cool about Marvel Snap is it has a lot of places where you can build skill, where you can learn, where you can like play matchups. I, I like to think of Marvel like that's the area of Marvel Snap I think is most analogous to chess. It's like chess is highly positional, uh, like figuring out what to do is really based on what's happening, and that's how Marvel Snap works tons. Like a, a, putting a card at one location might be great in one game, and it might be horrible in another because the position is very slightly different. Um, you know, like one or two power can change where you're supposed to play a card uh, to win the game multiple turns later. I think that's really cool. Hmm. I just wanted to circle back to sort of the fundamental design of Loki and cost reduction in a game like Marvel Snap. How do you feel about cost-reductive cards sort of in the sort of, I don't know, grand scheme of things in the design of Snap? And do you think it's one of the most powerful things that a player can be doing in the game? If not, like, I just want to ask sort of about other card game fundamentals and how they translate to a game like Snap, mm -hmm. doing things like drawing cards, location control, opponent discard, asymmetric information, things like Kang and Howard, multi-lane pressure in the, in the sort of in the form of like Doctor Doom. What do you think is like some of the most dangerous or I don't know, dangerous or volatile volatile areas of design of Marvel Snap and what are some of the most powerful things that uh, players can be doing? Yeah, it's a really interesting area to explore and we're honestly still kind of like learning about it and understanding it better ourselves. Um, a good, ex like the chess example, I just used a fine example of like how p positionally things, like position obviously is a manifestation of how the cards are actually deployed on the board. Um, and that can just change a lot of things, which isn't true in most card games. Like, you know, where you arrange your battlefield in Magic or whatever doesn't matter very much. Like in Pokemon, it's kind of this similar, where like maybe you should put a different person in the front versus in the back for adventure versus arena, like that comes up. Um, so I've been playing a ton of card games even more to like try and understand more about games that have like little pieces of our game or pieces of dynamics that appear in our game in different combinations. Um, so it's been really interesting. Uh, going down the list, like cost reduction is a fascinating one. Cost reduction is very powerful just in principle. Um, it lets you play, you know, more cards than you're supposed to be allowed to play. Like Marvel Snap has a finite amount of energy that you get each game, plus or minus seven, depending on whether somebody plays magic. Um, so yeah, like that's definitely powerful to be able to manipulate that. Uh, at the same time, like it's capped, right? Like if you can't play every card, if you could already play every card you draw, cost reduction is largely irrelevant, minus, you know, something like Sunspot. Um, 
So it's both very strong and also weak, depending on what you're doing. Um, Loki is, an, uh, is a reasonable example in this space. Moon Girl is probably a slightly better one, where it's like very often with Moon Girl, like you're making a bunch of cards, but you're not going to play them all. Mm -hmm. So is that card advantage? Like, not really. Like Marvel Snap's not about attrition. Like you don't make trades very often in Marvel Snap. You trade, you trade placement and power. Like if I'm going to take up a slot for three power and you're going to take up a slot for four power, that's a trade of sorts. But it's not attrition, right? It's not attrition in the in the traditional sense that card games use. Like Magic is a game that is largely about attrition in its smaller formats, um, whereas we have essentially none of it. And then it's a lot more about like linear, very powerful things that like overwhelm whatever your opponent's defense is. And we're closer to that, but at the same time, you know, we don't really. There's nothing that's like truly overwhelming. Like everything can theoretically be beaten if your opponent has is going second on turn six, right? Like there's just in general, given time and, uh, and agency, like there's not a lot of stuff that's just so far over the top. It can't mm. be stopped in comparison to something like magic where you can play like a hundred spells and then play a storm spell that copies it a hundred times and your opponent's definitely dead. There's no way they could possibly beat that, right? Like yeah. uh, there's nothing, there's nothing like that in, in snap. How do you feel? So that's the kind of thing. Oh, sorry, go ahead. So I was going to return to your list. Like it's also contextual, right? Like making your opponent discard one card. Is that super strong? I don't know if it's making them discard like their highest cost cards. Like, okay, well, that's really strong against some people, really bad against other people. Uh, but then it's like, you know, make them discard three cards. Okay, that's strong against everybody. Nobody, and it's not fun. Nobody's going to enjoy that. So how do we structure around making that available? Because right now, you know, it is possible to discard three of your opponent's cards and snap, right? Like, you can play Moon Knight into Silver Samurai into Black Bolt. Boom, you got them. Toss in a spider ham somewhere along the road to, like, maybe make it feel similar. Uh that's not, like we don't want that to happen a lot obviously we, we know that people don't really enjoy that but we do want at the same time there are people who enjoy doing it who are excited by the prospect of it so how do we balance it out for them mm -hmm. how do you feel about zero-sum fun and cards like galactus and how important is interactivity between <laughs> players in a game like marvel snap yeah galactus I, i've written a fair amount about galactus at this point both internally and externally uh but i'm gonna jump in I, here and let you know that Brendan is a Galactus fan. Just, That's just fine. letting I'm you know the audience a Galactus here. Fan. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think so. Galactus does two things super well. Uh, the first is he demonstrates uh, the incredible possibility space of the game. Mm -hmm. Right, like Galactus is the sort of card that you don't even know it might exist until you see it, and you're like, oh my god, like that is possible. Like that's a thing that happens. Like those kinds of cards are awesome. Love making them. I think every card game needs to do stuff like that where your audience just is blown away by what you figured out to do. It can't all just be like, put these numbers together in a pleasing formula and do something slightly mm -hmm. interesting. Like, no, you need you need some stuff that really blows people out of the water. Uh, so Galactus does that in an awesome way. He also reprioritizes, like, what's important in a game. Similarly, that's cool. Like I talked about earlier, we don't want tech cards, like, necessarily always being the best thing to be building your whole deck around. Uh, Galactus is very much in, in that boat. Like he's like, Hey, no, like, like, we're not going to care about that. This game, we're going to care, care about something different. We're going to care about who has the biggest stuff in one location. Um, so he does those two things really well. And those are both positive things to have around. Uh, what he did too well was he made the opponent, made the player feel like they weren't playing the game they had decided to click on, on their phone, right? Like they were like, I want to play Marvel snap, I'll click this. And then they're like, okay, well, I feel like I'm playing like this weird version of War now, uh, and it's not Marvel <laughs> Snap. Uh, and that's totally fair. Like, if I was yeah, playing War and my exactly opponent's deck was. was all kings and aces, I would be like, this game sucks. I don't want to play that. 
so yeah, I totally get that. And we ultimately, st- we, like we want both, right? We, like, Galactus was doing all these two good things for us that are powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and re- and the, the recontextualizing what's strong in the game and making it less like Marvel Snap, those are kind of tied up together. Like that's why, that's how that one yeah. works is it makes the game less like Snap. So we don't want to throw it away. Plus we have people like Brennan who are fans of Galactus. We don't want to just throw the card away to a totally different design. Like that's not going to make anyone, including us happy. Like we're, we want to try and find what was exciting about the fantasy of the card and keep it intact. Um, and that was ultimately what we sought to do with that rework. And largely that rework hit all of our goals for it. Uh, the cards like still, still actually a winning card, uh, but it's a, a narrow margin. It has polarizing matchups. Um, it's less popular. Like all those things added up pretty well. I think uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy. Whoever with pitched that redesign. Like I, I, I think whoever came up with that one is like an absolute genius. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, because I, I came to the same conclusions that you're talking about here. If you go back and listen to the snapshot, which I guess you might actually have done, like you basically listed out a lot of the things we were saying, which is like a lot of the counters aren't counters. And also it relies on them being in your deck. And mm-hmm. once arrow wasn't everywhere anymore, after she got nerfed, right. everyone didn't have the free Galactus counter in their deck. And you actually had to pay a deck building cost if you wanted to respect this card at all. Right. And changing his condition to what you changed it to, like, I would not have come up with it in a million years. Like, it's it, it, I genuinely consider that a work of, it's the best balance you, you guys have ever done. It, that is the single best change that you have put into the game, in my opinion, where you keep what is good about Galactus, but you give decks, every deck, a fundamental way to interact with them. And that is so, so key. It is like head and shoulders above, in my opinion, basically every other balance change you've made because a card like Galactus, you're right. You can't delete it. You can't just like make it terrible. It's cool. It's really cool, but it's also really dangerous. And part of the reason why it was really dangerous is it was hard to interact with. So you added a dimension where the thing every deck does naturally interacts with it. And I just I think that one deserves kudos. I don't think you guys get enough praise for how good that Galactus one was. I've I've disagreed with balance decisions before, but that Galactus one was by far my favorite. I appreciate that. The uh, one of the things that did kind of has been a focus of mine as I started here at, at Marvel Snap uh, was some of the cards that were coming out were not didn't have robust balance knobs. I would say mm-hmm. the Galactus is a prime example, right? Like, what do you how do you tune Galactus? It's like the original one, like okay, well, you can make him lower power, but now Shang Chi's much worse against him. He's actually better. It's actually a buff. One of the tech cards. When you, yeah, <laughs> you can make him higher power, but now he's much more likely to beat the people who don't draw Shang Chi. Like yeah. you know, if he was just the same card as before, but ten power, it's like so. What's the number, right? Like, there's got to be you know, there's a number that exists, I'm sure, but it's probably some super weird number, like negative eleven or something. Right? Like, there, I'm, and I don't have the time to find that number, like because you know, yeah, it, it, it's just not worth it. Um. So, yeah, like a lot of it was figuring out, okay, Galactus has essentially one knob because we, we could theoretically change energy, but we don't really want to. Uh, so how do we actually like make that a knob? And so that was, you know, we figured out a design that does that. We tried a bunch of weird stuff that uh, definitely a lot of it was he- terrible and did not work. Um, but that was the one that we kind of kept coming back to. It was like, we really need to make it so that we can, like, if we miss, we can just change the power and we'll hit. Like, that's the, that's the most successful possible rework is making him OTA-able. 
I, I so, also yeah. I also think that like when you think about the things the community was pitching at the time, the stuff the community was pitching was all this like uh make him just say you can only play him on turn six or like <laughs> just like just stuff stuff that sucks. I don't really know a better word to say it. Like stuff that is A complex oh. and B feels bad. Where it's just like not actually like it solves the problem in the most straightforward brute force way. And that's what I like about the redesign, which is it's elegant. It just works. Yeah. There's no the... weird magic text on it. So we definitely like every now and then, like I don't usually go like, you know, trolling for ideas from the community, but obviously I see tons of them. Uh, and even when I don't agree with like the direction for a lot of those designs, such as with Galactus, like one of the things that seeing those kinds of ideas is really helpful in is it tells us what the unpleasantness is for people. Like when someone suggests a design, like even if it's a very flawed design, it, it will often communicate what they find distasteful about the card. Um, yeah, you can and reverse so that, engineer that it. Gives us that gives us, you know, uh, data points for like, okay, what, you know, if we were to implement this fix, this person would still be upset. Like, is there some fix that solves both? Like, you know, that's the kind of thing that uh, I find myself thinking about. And and also, like, you speak to elegance. That's something I prioritize a lot. Like, snap cards, we want them to be relatively clean reads. Um, mm -hmm. So when we can solve multiple problems with one problem, that's great. Because we really only have, or one solve, I should say. That's really only all we can put on the card, really. Like, one or two, one or two things is all we get to fit. Yeah, what I loved what? about Galactus and what I still like about Galactus is that, it, is that it changes the paradigm of Marvel Snap, which was actually the detriment of the card, like you talked about. The opponent would queue up the game and they would not, they would, n they would not get what they signed up for. But I do think it's very refreshing to have cards exist in the game for where I can transition from, you know, maybe my traditional point slam deck or a deck that's competing strictly on points in all three lanes, and find a card that will actually just change the somewhat win condition of the game. And I think that Galactus was a good reflection of that, and still is. Um, there's also other ways to change the paradigm of the game right like i think loki kind of does that it's the concept of a card that plays your opponent's cards um like i think these cards add a lot of replayability into marvel snap and we we you can you can have sort of a respite from maybe uh more traditional decks or you know usually what are the best decks in the meta which are either the sort of responsive tech card decks or the point slime decks. so i don't know that's that's why i like the card personally yeah i think it serves that role well and i like to make cards that do that for sure that mm -hmm shift a little bit and make people think oh this deck i maybe thought wasn't good is good like people making rank one with cerebro three last week is like <laughs> a huge win for my team right like that's we're yeah. like that's awesome there's how could that what, not be awesome <laughs> what uh what of your work are you most proud of in marvel snap is there like a specific thing where you're like oh i i nailed that i crushed that i knocked that out of the park is there something you're True. feeling that you're feeling proud of right now I mean, I'm proud of a lot of things. I think it's kind of gauche to came to claim credit for a lot of the, the okay, stuff that goes public. You facing. nailed that. The team yeah. nailed but that. There are there are things I'm proud of that I don't find gauche to claim credit for, which is okay. uh, like you know, I, I came in. We you know, I came from Magic, a company that knows exactly how kind of to take something from zero to a printed card, yeah. and being able to kind of like adjust and build our design pipeline and create better handoff structures and and just make that process not only more efficient for design but also like better for the teams that we intersect with um like it just on friday you know like i'm writing out a vfx report for our vfx team like this is what design is trying to capture with each of these cards this is how you know some ideas for how we might capture it like you know that's that kind of documentation and getting making that part of the system like that's something i did add and i'm really proud of doing that and i, I love to just make other people's lives easier in a company. One of the things I've always done is 
you know, played around in other people's roles a little bit, like enough to know what's going on. I did that at Magic. Like, that's how I became a designer, right? Like, I tried design a little bit while I was an editor. Um, and I did that with all kinds of other jobs. You know, like, I talked to art directors all the time. I would participate in top-lining meetings. I wrote flavor text for cards. Like, I did all of these things to give me, like, more insight into what different teams need, what makes them work better. And now I'm getting to, like, kind of bring that to bear for Marvel Snap, uh, which is an ongoing process that will, you know, take years, if ever, to complete. Um, but yeah, I, that's the thing I actually am, like, legitimately most proud of. I mean, yeah, things like Spider-Man and Galactus or whatever are, like, cool. Uh, but I'm not, th- those aren't, like, the f- those aren't the feathers that I'll, like, remember, you know, like, 10 years from now or whatever. Like, that's not the thing that, I, that I'll hold as, much, as valuable. Right, because it's not your day-to-day. Our day-to-day is the cards. Yes, Your day-to-day exactly. is your process, right? Like, uh, it's, it's, very, it's a very different thing. Your day-to-day is the people you work with, the process and all of that. So, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I don't remember. I used to, I used to write a lot. I don't remember the best piece I ever worked, wrote. Like, I, I would have mm-hmm. absolutely no idea. I just remember when I had a good day and a bad day, and the only measurement of that I have is how I felt about it. <laughs> like, so I, I yeah. totally... I totally understand why that answer is not like, uh, yeah, we totally nailed the forge buff. (laughs) I I, I get it. Uh, I did want to ask, though. Normally, I get the sense you guys sort of back balance, which is to say you release something in in a state and then you're like, ah, we got to adjust that. Let's go. Let's use our OTA in order to adjust that with the recent change to Thanos. I have a conspiracy theory that you were front balancing in the sense that you were getting rid of like tuning Thanos down to avoid, you know, turn four profex, turn five dino, turn six Eliath deck for any amount of oh, time. Sure. Is my conspiracy theory off base here or Yeah, that's pretty off base. I don't actually try and okay. front balance too much. There are some cases where it's like real obvious. Um a good example, I guess, would be like Wave. We we changed yeah, wave, wave before with, yeah. High High Evolutionary came out because yeah. the I, I called it the the Mighty Green Giant um, deck, like where it was just all of the cost reduced green people. Basically, uh, it was just like not super fun to play against at all. Very powerful. Um, so like yeah, I was like you know I I want to make this change. Also like Wave as as discussed in the the change was just like how do we make more deaths if Wave exists? Because eventually you just build a deck that's like all of the deaths and like three enablers for each each one or whatever and moon girl or what I mean, that's just the whole the whole deck and the whole metagame and it's not it's not super interesting um so yeah like there are cases where it's obvious that we need to do it and we do do that but generally like trying to predict like the strongest specific deck that you're gonna miss so often relative to how you hit that it's not really worth the effort like the deck you're describing maybe that deck would have been awesome maybe it'll still be awesome i i don't know um i'm not i don't have the exhaustive enough testing resources to determine with like a high degree of confidence either way mm. uh so that's not a that was not a component of that change that change was t- twofold uh the first was thanos at the time that we decided to make it was doing really well um and it was back to like the professor x lockdown style of thanos and that was specifically the one we liked the least it's okay to have it around but uh whenever like professor x is in your best performing deck it's like okay like how do we want to change that because that's probably not ideal yeah um so we approached it from that angle and also like thanos is in this space where just the raw versatility of the kit is is not the same as wave but is like a future facing ongoing issue or like Every now and then, you're just going to do something, and Thanos is just going to be the best place to do it because Thanos has all the, all of these tools. 
Um, yeah. So we're like, you know, the kit has been proven to be really strong over and over. Like we've seen that hap that exact dynamic happen where something comes out and Thanos is the best deck for a week or whatever, and then it maybe subsides, maybe it doesn't, depending on what what happens. Um, so the kit was just looking like, on average, it's a little too strong. So we wanted to shave off a slight amount of power. Uh, I know we shaved off. He didn't have a lot of easy places to shave, uh, but yeah. that you know, so we did actually you know look at the data like what was the strongest performing stone? Like how often do you win when you draw st- stone N or whatever? Soul stones like crushing the other stones. Like it's yeah. not close. It's the safest. So, well, it's because yeah. it's it's the least conditional one, right? Like right. That's the one that you're always comfortable playing, right? It, you don't yeah. want to. You're not like oh, I need to save this reality stone. Oh, I need to save this space stone. Oh, this time stone's on turn three. I but Soulstone you could always play and now you can't always play and, and I, I, I you say shave that's a that's a uh, Sweeney Todd yeah. type shave right there you uh <laughs> I wouldn't go that far but yes it, it is a it is a meaningful loss of strength like we, is, we yes meaningful yeah. it is it is a it is a big one that's interesting. like I I but, was surprised to see it because like the deck just needs to run downhill and more more roadblocks are really tough mm-hmm. to that. Hmm. Was and the, it's also going to teach us something too. So, was the data point? Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I just was the data point on draw or play on the uh, on that stone. Uh, was it? Oh, on, it was on. It, it was on draw. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering because we generally uh, track win rate when drawn. Okay. Yeah. Because I yeah. was just I think back to Thanos and like the, one of the most iconic things about Thanos is, um, you know, Mind Stone and Snap and just the power of that card, especially early. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to hear that data point. I want to hear get your thoughts on cards that break sort of the fundamental tenets of the game. Something like Magic that extends the game past turn six. I understand that that's only one additional turn at this point and it is somewhat minimal. But how do you feel about sort of that process you know breaking those core tenets extending the game past its sort of uh its its barrier of time and how far can we expect to you know keep pushing that level of design in marvel snap keep you know sort of breaking this like core gameplay loop um that exists with you know all the cards in snap except for this one card yeah i don't i don't think you should expect to see uh the game last until turn eight anytime soon um (laughs) But magic is in the same space of uh, Galactus, I think, where it's just like, oh, like this can happen. Like it's the sort of thing you just didn't yeah. imagine necessarily would happen until you see it. Uh, and I think I think that that's awesome. Obviously, I've said that I think that's awesome when it happens. Uh, I, it opens up though the place for like different decks to compete in different ways. Um, it has this kind of like cross functionality with uh, Electro versus you know, like Jubilee or something where it can, it lets you like kind of cheat, kind of not cheat. Like you do have to, you know, you have to pay for what you bought from the store, but at the same time, you know, you brought more money than you're typically allowed. Um, so that, that kind of thing. And I think that it, it's really cool. Uh, I like cards where I can kind of implement that, like wave magic and electro all in some ways you could say they all do the same thing for a certain group of cards, but they all do it totally differently. Uh, and I think that that's great. I love it when the design space for, an effect can exist and manifest in different ways where it's correct to play one or none of the other effects or like which two you pick is kind of interesting. Whether you can build your deck for all three is kind of interesting, like that that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I really like magic as a card. I like the more magics I can make in principle, uh, I think the better. Like I think that that's a, you don't want to make like, you know, a season of magics. That mm-hmm. would be a wild month. Uh, but every, every other month or so, like a card like magic existing, that's cool if we can if we can hit that uh, that particular line. Like I think that that is ultimately very additive to the game. Mm. How do you feel? I, about... I will note, you're a good game. There yeah. were people in my Discord 
there are people in my Discord who wanted to compliment you guys on uh, the creation of Loki, which is an extremely powerful card that reads very simply. Like, no complexity creep, just good card, right? And mm -hmm. uh, I, think, I think that's sort of the same... Something in that vein, where it's just like, this card is a sentence long, it makes perfect sense, and you can immediately see why it's strong. And I just wanted to pass that on. It seemed like the opportune time based on the previous conversation. Mm. How do you Thanks. feel about the current cadence of OTAs? And talk to me a little bit about the shift from weekly OTAs to the current schedule. And do you think that the, the current schedule that we're on is the optimal schedule for OTAs in Marvel Snap? Uh, I don't know if it's the optimal schedule. I think that it's, I think we've roughly hit the spot where we kind of have an idea of what's the optimal amount of change, which is somewhere between, like, I think we want meaningful change about twice a month, and I think we want that change to be about four to maybe six on the high end of cards, generally speaking. Like, prob could probably go as low as three, but if we're going to do as low as three, like, they need to be some pretty meaningful shifts, like... Doctor Doom up a power is not wouldn't would not go in the three card OTA. It's it's good, but not like a a huge shakeup. Like magic down to three, that would go in a three card OTA, right? That's a big shake. Um, so that's kind of the the vibe I'm looking for. Is like we want every OTA to kind of create the, almost that feeling of new content. Uh, that players can go out and the game is fresh and exciting, and there's more stuff for them to explore again. So that's a, usually a little bit of column A, a little bit of, a lot of column B when it comes to like big changes and small changes. Are OTAs um, primarily driven by internal data on the cards yes. that you buff? Yeah, we we take we pretty frequently look at uh, what's performing the best, what's performing the worst, and what do we think would be interesting to adjust about the cards doing that. Um, sometimes we'll look at the best performing deck. Sometimes we'll look at the best performing cards. Sometimes both, and ditto for the worst. Um, the worst cards are pretty easy to to like measure and identify. You know, we just go to each an individual card and check it out. Like if it's if an individual card's numbers are terrible, those numbers are going to be terrible in a given deck. Like that's not us. We don't need to necessarily do a lot of exploration to figure out if the card could be buffed. Like Blade was one such card. We're just really weak numbers. We don't need to go dive through every single Blade deck to figure out which specific Blade deck we could make better. We're like, no, this card's just not really working for people. Um, so let's see what we can do. Uh. Then for, but the, for on the upper end, it's a little bit more complex, right? Like I can take Darkhawk as an example, you know, like Darkhawk has been sometimes the best card, sometimes the like 15th best card or whatever, like he bounces around all over the place. Um, so when we look at whether we want to correct that, we, we do want to dive at the deck, right? Like there are different decks that could play Darkhawk. In general, I think it might be cooler if a new deck is the best Darkhawk deck versus an old deck is the best Darkhawk deck. So that's the kind of direction I'm more interested in changing versus just, is Darkhawk too strong or whatever. Like, Darkhawk's... There's so, there are a bunch of ways to interact with Darkhawk. We're making even more ways to interact with Darkhawk over time. Like, the card is generally getting worse, not better, uh, as cards release into the game by virtue of just how we do cards. Um not 100% true, like, as soon as we make, you know, like, five cost, add three rocks to your opponent's deck or whatever. All right, we're back on top again. Um, but Wait, gen when are you generally... Make that card, by the way? Yeah. When are you going to make, a, when are you gonna make uh, Scarlet Witch, but for Subterranea? When are you going to make that card? When are you going to do... I don't know. What you... I wouldn't expect to see that card anytime soon. The people uh, demand I... more Subterranea. <laughs> that's what everyone wants. Uh, so that's... That's the kind of space where, yeah, like when we want to keep a card kind of in the same spot, but we do want to adjust how it's 
working in the metagame, that's where we will most often dive into. What are the decks that use it? Why is it strong in those decks? Can we make can we add predators to those decks into the metagame? Like that's a thing that can be nice. Like, you know, the, I'm not this isn't a direction we're gonna do, so it's easy to explore. But like if I really wanted to make Darkhawk a lot worse, like I'd make Crystal like a three four that draws two cards or whatever, right? Like that's gonna have a huge impact on Darkhawk. Yeah. Uh so I that's the kind of change we could theoretically do. Uh, to, if we wanted to attack the card without necessarily nerfing it, uh, and I, and we do make those kinds of changes all the time, where we're you know like this this card we don't want to actually make it worse, but we want to make its predator stronger. Hmm. I uh, wanted to jump off of you. You talked about the bad cards, and I I want to. This is I guess a little bit of a ramble, but I think you'll see where I'm going with it pretty quickly. Uh, a card that comes up that people suggest needs a buff to me a ton, like probably more than any other card is Black Widow. Mm-hmm. And my response to what would you do to buff Black Widow has almost always been, I would not buff Black Widow. I do not want Black Widow to be played more. To what degree are there cards like when you look at the worst performing cards, there are some that are down there that are just like, OK, Crossbones, Angel, you look at them and they're like, OK, it's very clear why this is bad. But they have the Galactus problem where like a good version of them is either really strong or like really annoying. <laughs> and mm-hmm. like to what degree are cards like that on your radar? Right. Where it's just like we could buff Black Widow. We could make Black Widow playable. We could make Black Widow really good. But we don't want that to be the prevailing experience of Marvel Snap, right? Like, we could buff Angel. We could say, you can't ever draw this card, and then suddenly he's, like, the best card in the game, right? But you don't want that to be an option. So to what degree are you just like, these cards have to be bad the way they are right now? If there's a card that has to be bad to exist, that, to me, is an indication that we should rework that card. Not that okay. we should not buff it. Um so Black Widow, I actually, so I, I get where you're coming from on Black Widow. Like we don't want Black Widow to be the number one strongest, most played card in Marvel Snap or whatever. But I don't think it's so, its effect is so frustrating or potentially toxic that it necessarily needs to die. Like there are, even now with Loki is a good example. Like if Black Widow, if we gave Black Widow an extra power, you know, tomorrow or whatever, how how bad would that be for Marvel Snap? Probably not that bad at all. Like Loki just turns that Widow's Bite into a card. You feel like a buffoon, uh, like, you know, move on. Um, yeah. So that's the kind of kind of example where I'm like, yeah, well, there are other ways we can kind of mitigate cards like that that have risk or have some potential for frustration. Um, and I don't think Black Widow meets the bar of like, oh, this is just not going anywhere. Uh, a more interesting case to me is Adam Warlock, where it's like Adam Warlock. <laughs> how do we make that card stronger? Yeah. If it's if it's stronger, that's probably bad. Like it's we yeah. don't want people just drawing an extra card more than once or twice in a game. Like even once or twice, you should be paying a pretty large cost for it. And that card's not even that bad for the rate you get. Like if you could consistently draw two cards from Adam Warlock, paying two energy and one slot at a location is a steal for that effect. Yeah, that's like one um, of the best cards in the game if you can do that, right? Like if you even yeah. if you give him just one power, yeah. he's cantripping, right? And it's exactly. just like okay. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, we we like okay, well, let's try giving him one power and making him like three or four energy or something like that so that he can't consistently get it. Well, okay, well now he's just miserable. He's not actually more fun. He just like <laughs> works slightly more often, but you feel way worse when he fails. Like if you play your 2-0 yeah. and never draw a card, you're like, all right, you know, I threw away turn two, not that bad. When you throw away turn four, 
you're like, okay, I got to like delete this card fast. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the, like Adam Warlock's in a really tricky spot. Uh, and we're, we haven't quite decided what we're going to do there, but like, I think he is a much more interesting example of a card that like has this problem. And it's interesting because his problem isn't that he would be toxic or necessarily, or it's just like, there's not a, like, he doesn't have great knobs. There's just not a lot of places to go with him that create a fun card. Um, whereas Black Widow, like also a great example of a card, like we could just try making Black Widow stronger. And if it doesn't work out, we can just OTA it right back. Right. Like it's very easy. Um, and I think that's part of the upside of our balance approach is like, you know, a month where Black Widow is one of the strongest cards in the game is not theoretically horrible because it is changeable. Uh, like a game where Black Widow is one of the best cards in the game. That's a different thing, right? Like, yeah, yeah. You don't want to be necessarily in that spot. Um, but Black Widow month, that's totally cool. We're, we're happy to have a month where something gets like totally out of whack. The change to magic was kind of in that space, right? Like there were like two or three weeks where like the Marvel Snap metagame was just like, what is happening? <laughs> this is a totally different place than it was a week ago after the magic change. And now things have just kind of settled down and it's not so different well, until lo- it was Loki like two to three days, then. honestly, because it was like two to three yeah, days yeah. of everyone doing ridiculous stuff. And then I was like, wait, I can police this. And and then Darkhawk yes. came back in and it was like, ah, yes, we have answers to this. And then you printed Legion and it was like, ah, yes, all of these magics are dead. Um, but no, there's actually still good magic decks out there. I mean, like Evo, for example, even yeah. God forbid, Hella um, Tribunal right now is as playable as it's ever been. Yep, I made infinite with a Evo. It's funny you bring up the Legion versus magic thing, because I actually my greatest the su- most success I had playing with magic during the Legion era was specifically with these high evolutionary decks and like playing magic and then just playing a card on turn six to beat them when they thought they were leeching yeah. you out. And you're <laughs> like, no, you, you just lose yeah, instead. Yeah, yeah. Five, yeah. seven is less than nine. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a fun. Uh, eight is less I, than nine back then. I can I, I, sorry, I got distracted. Angel. Angel. What's up with that? Can we do something about that guy? Like, Angel is on our radar. Honestly, we would have changed Angel uh, a while ago, but we want to retain the VFX and the fixes that we have uh, require that attention. And we haven't had a lot of VFX uh, downtime. So when we're looking at balance updates, we do triage them based on like what we think would impact the metagame most positively and what is the lowest lift on internal resources and try and like kind of structure things accordingly. Um, so like the blade change is a good example of that we're like we could have done that you know ages ago and it's no lift on vfx for us to do so we just have to yeah. decide when we want to slot it in um but angel is is a lift and also like what does angel do right like angel rewards destroy do we want to buff angel like coming right off of dock and season like oh, that's probably not the right time like destroys had you know a pretty big meal of it for a month like we probably want to give it a little time to let let that change uh whatever it may be uh you know, percolate and then kind of come back in and create another interesting destroy deck. Uh, so that's that's kind of my approach to that. Like, we are going to... Angel is on our list of cards, like, to improve. Uh, and we're just, you know, figuring out both the right time from a resourcing standpoint and from a gameplay standpoint. Mm. Glenn, I want to ask you, as a person that's played card games for a long time, has worked on other card games, what do you think about Marvel Snap as a new genre of card games? Short games, small decks, very visual card design, fun and exciting gameplay. Like, the more I play Marvel Snap and the more the game is realized as it starts to mature, the more I ask myself the question of why would you ever go Mm. back to these 45, 50-minute games that have instances of uninteractivity? You know, what you ask yourself, what merit does land go add to a game you know potentially on turn one in a game like magic mm-hmm. is marvel snap in your opinion the future of card games 
It's funny you said because you're a you're a flesh and blood gamer, right? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> at, like at when I was uh, internal at Wizards and that game was coming out, I was very much kind of I was like, why would you want this? Like, isn't this just like what you already had? But oh my gosh, so much more intense in some ways. Um, so, but yeah, I'm, I'm digressing. But yeah, like I so the the genre question is kind of interesting because going to like you know gdc and conventions with game designers like there's often a lot of attention paid to like how do we define things like what's the definition of fun what's the definition of a game what's the definition of genre it's like i find a lot of those discussions kind of pedantic uh and it's it's if you can find a definition that serves your purpose and is useful to you i think that's great uh but i consider those more like design pillars or mission statements like you define it for your game Mm -hmm. work under that definition for your game move on to the next game maybe you use a new definition there because that's what that game needs that's kind of my my approach to thinking through things um i do think that marvel snap distinguishes itself as being possibly the first but certainly what the most successful mobile first ccg Mm -hmm. which is design space that had been very secondary like hearthstone was a huge game i've personally played like single digit hours of hearthstone on my computer versus uh my phone but it is not a mobile first game right like that it just wasn't um and marvel snap is like that's what a lot of those things that you've highlighted out like you know it's got it's very flashy it's got a huge emphasis on art um it's got the three minute games like all of these elements that really speak to being a great experience on mobile that's not designed explicitly towards the pc and and i think like the pc version is great but i do think marvel snap is more fun on the phone like i play i play test on my phone uh at work i don't play test on my computer because that's the experience i want to have for the game because i I don't want my play testing data colored by the device that i'm using in potentially a negative direction yeah so Um, when i I talk about the genre thing too i think that you know the reason why i use that word is because i think that marvel snap optimized and changed so many things that were somewhat archaic and i don't know stagnant in card games that it's almost at a level to which those card games don't compete with it like marvel snap is complementary to other card games rather than cannibalistic because it is so refreshing so new and so streamed like um it i don't think there's a question of do you play magic or marvel snap it's you probably play magic and marvel snap or you're sort of agnostic and you play a single one like i think the game genuinely excelled at fixing pretty much all of the problems that you would associate with a traditional card game this sounds pithy but they fixed it by making it a game you could play on the toilet i'm like Mm -hmm. not even joking like there's no there's no there's no joke there like the reason I got into the game was because I was like, oh, dude, this is like this is just all mono red aggro mirrors. They're all five minutes and every decision is incredibly intense. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's how, why I got into it. But like fundamentally, just a game you can play in five minutes, something Hearthstone and Magic cannot guarantee you at all at any time. Uh, the simultaneous yeah. turns go a long way there. But like like legitimately mm-hmm. just it's that good because it's that fast. When you talk about the complementary aspect, I think that's actually really an interesting thing to hit on because Magic was designed to be a complementary game way back when. In 1993, the the, the design ethos for Magic was uh, that Richard Garfield was asked, hey, you know, like people love playing tabletop RPGs like D&D. Mm-hmm. Could you design a game they can play between sessions, like something to you know pass the time that's in the same genre? Uh, and then that's how, that's where magic was essentially kind of born from. Uh, and obviously it, you know, far exceeded expectations, uh, in that regard. But I think like snap does do that, uh, exact kind of a thing. It, it is something you can engage in, like between other activities, other games, like you can do it, you know, like while waiting for your turn in a board game, like, you know, it's a little rude. I wouldn't necessarily advise it, but you can, <laughs> it's totally, totally possible. Uh, I definitely don't do it all the time. 
Yes, I play. Um, I play so, a lot yeah. of Marvel Snap. But you do it. You do it sometimes, though. That's a, that's an admission. <laughs> I do it. I do it way more than I should. I'm very. Don't play Settlers of Catan with Glenn Jones. <laughs> yeah. That's what I've learned here. Oh, you, you won't have to worry about playing Settlers with me. <laughs> okay. I'm sure. I'm sure you've heard this, but uh, Marvel Snap is probably one of the most popular games that is played. Um, at a physical TCG event. So at US Nationals, the Pro mm-hmm. Tour Worlds, in between rounds, Marvel Snap is a very popular game that people are playing. And I will frequently play it, um, you know, waiting waiting between matches. Glenn, I want to ask you, because you worked on Spellslingers at Magic. So Spellslingers, theoretically, possibly, I've heard from a rumor, was a response to Magic seeing how successful Hearthstone was. How long do you think it is? And do you consider this before somebody sees the success of Marvel Snap, sees everything you've done to improve upon sort of the original model of card games, and they try to come out or try to sort of mimic the success of Marvel Snap. Is that something that you all are considering? Because I genu- my, my thesis right now is that Marvel Snap genuinely does not compete with any other card game. It has redefined the genre. It's not, I would say I consider it something that will happen. That's like inevitable, um, but it's not something I'm like explicitly worried about. Um, I have, I have a pretty laid back approach uh, to game design, I guess, which is, you know, like we're all here, we're all doing, trying to make awesome stuff for our players, doing cool things. Uh, when somebody hits upon something really awesome, like they've added to kind of the story of our industry. And that's just like a new thing to do. Like magic did that, right? Like mm-hmm. games have been copying magic for decades at this point. Um, and that's cool. Like that's magic's legacy in the genre is essentially how popular it was and how much it was copied and how much it drove design like tons of one of the things you might not even realize is how many actual game design studios uh and games where like the leadership roles in those studios are people who worked on magic like very early on it is a ton of people Mm -hmm. it is probably an unhealthy number of people relative uh just to like the diversity of ideas and and things that how those things should be shared like um but yeah, it's a ton of people. I, I can't go to a, a game company and not find somebody there who worked at Wizards at some point. It's it's almost impossible, as far as I know. Um, so yeah, like that's what that's like the legacy of, of Magic. And if Marvel Snap's legacy is you know it changes how mobile games mm-hmm. uh, get evaluated, especially like you know card battling games, I think for sure uh, that's where there's a lot of lessons to be learned. But I think it applies in other directions too, like. I, you know, I work on games, uh, game ideas in my spare time for myself, and I am influenced directly by Marvel Snap and what I think it does well and what I think maybe it even does poorly or could do better. Um, and that's a lot of the, that's where I expect in general, um, the industry is constantly building on itself. You know, like Baldur's Gate 3 just came out, like the same thing's going to happen there. Yeah. People are seeing the success of this huge game, totally different. Uh, totally different genre from Snap, totally different audience in many ways, cases from Snap, uh, the play experience, totally, but what happens is the same. People see, people integrate, people evolve, and we get the next most awesome thing years down the road. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the end game loop of Marvel Snap. So currently consisting mostly of Ladder and Conquest, you came from Magic. You're aware of the limited format, maybe even a fan of it yourself. Do you think that there is a future of limited in Marvel Snap? It is currently a community-fostered format and a beloved one at that for those that play it. Is that a potential in the future for Snap? Uh, it's it's certainly possible. I can't like I'm at risk of like I don't want to make people think like too I'm too mm-hmm. certain or too uncertain. I guess, but yeah, it, I would say it's possible. Um, I I do love limited. I think. Limited has a ton of things that are awesome going for it. Like it's a really great equalizer. People get a level playing field in some sense. Um, 
It exposes you to cards that you might not own, which can drive excitement to play the game more and engage in other modes uh, or engage in finding and acquiring that card. Uh, it's one of the things I think people, the, the game designery approach to limited is like limited is a, a story. It's like a, a three act play, essentially, you know, like you, you get your cards, you build your build and play your deck, and then you get, you know, your story ends uh, when you're either eliminated or you win. Like that's uh, an element of play that people maybe don't appreciate, but I think that is a driving thing about limited. It's one of the reasons I think like limited, think about limited events, um, league, like the capped gameplay of leagues versus you know like if you played the same draft deck for a month which is more popular right like it's the capped thing like nobody wants to draft their deck and then play it for 30 days like they, that lacks the three act story like i'm not getting that final chapter that satisfying conclusion to what i did um so that's just a, a very minor kind of note on limited game design i guess but in general i like limited a lot i play it a ton in my spare time with other games um, I even really like games that I think have kind of captured the limited experience in different ways, which is something that I'm kind of inspired by. Uh, Hearthstone Battlegrounds and Teamfight Tactics are good examples mm -hmm. of that, where like those games very much feel like limited gameplay, even though they don't have a constructed analog. Um, so like the limited moniker kind of doesn't make any sense. Uh, but it, that's that's what they go for, right? They're trying to contain the the experience of like oh you get to you know approach this problem you get dealt some random stuff you cobble and adapt and figure out what the best thing to do is and i think that's just in general a really fun thing to do mm -hmm. and the pick up and play low barrier to entry is sort of it's kind of a kind of a mini game of what constructed is right constructed a lot more domain knowledge mm -hmm. required potentially collection etc you know speaking of marvel snaps constructed constructed format how do you feel about the current new player experience of Marvel Snap. Do you feel like that Series 1, Series 2 introduction and that that initial game loop is um, is in an optimal state? Are you happy with it? I'm pretty happy with it. We do have uh, a team, even right now, I think, that is uh, re just reviewing it and seeing like where there might be some potential for improvement. Um, when you talk about like innovations within the genre, I think that's actually one of the ways that underappreciated ways that Marvel Snap is really strong. Like most tutorialized card games, you like get your first deck, you play it for a little bit. Uh, once you know how the game works, you get kind of thrown into the deepish end of the pool and you need a new deck, right? Like that deck's not going to cut it. Your whatever your whatever your, your magic starter deck on arena, that's not getting you taking you very far if you're trying to climb the ladder or whatever. Uh, then, but Marvel Snap doesn't really have that problem the same way. Like your deck that you play series one, series two, like it's a fine deck for like you, you'll have to upgrade it with the new cards you get, but you're getting cards that are designed for that experience, right? Like your upgrade is going to be straightforward in a lot of cases. Um, eventually you get some agency introduced. You get to decide if you're an Odin or Spectrum deck or whatever. Yeah. Um, and you can just kind of keep going. And that's a very satisfying experience for a very long time relative to what you're encountering around you. Uh, on the off chance you happen to make infinite in your first month, that's going to be a, a bit of a different story uh, since infinite like uncaps your opponent yeah. pool. Um, but as, as long like if that doesn't happen, which it doesn't for the vast majority of the pe of people uh, like you're growing, you're growing and your collection is growing kind of at the same pace as opponents uh, growth and collections. And there's some gap in catch up, in series three, especially where like you'll start encountering people who are maybe farther ahead of you on either axis or both. Uh, but up until that point, uh, it's, it's pretty tight. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that really clicks for people and makes the game uh, sticky and easy to grab onto and, and grow with. Like certainly it was for me uh, when I first played the game uh, in beta, you know, like I, I played, it was, it was fine. And I just kept playing and kept 
adapting my deck and I felt successful the whole time. Uh, I felt like I knew what was going on. I didn't feel, you know, out of sorts. I felt it very much at home. And I think that's a difficult fear, feeling to create uh, in a CCG without creating like eventually some huge break point where you're just like, oh, like I've been playing a totally different game this whole time. And even the gap between series two and series three, like there, that's probably the biggest gap I would say is like right when mm-hmm. you kind of transit into it, but it's still smaller than that like magic arena starter deck to standard yeah. deck. Like that gap is a chasm. <laughs> uh and here it's like, no, you're like, you know, three or four cards away from maybe being right back where you were. Like you just gotta, gotta I do want hold on. I, you say three or four cards, right? But I, I, I do mean there's there's specific cards that may be difficult to there's find. Specific them. Yes, cards but, that may or may not cost six thousand tokens, right? Like uh well I'm speaking to the like series three player versus series two player. Like so but yes, like as you continue to graduate, like there's another gap and like, yeah, there's I think another there there's another series, yes. there's another deeper well that you sort of wander into. Mm-hmm. I, I remember yes. uh that like six hundred CL range being like the dead <laughs> zone where like you didn't have anything but all your opponents, and this wasn't me because I was the opponents uh, who had everything. I was the opponents who had everything, but I was a lot of complaining about that. I remember when people were hitting that just after the token shop came out. I will say, I guess this is a good segue to a question I really wanted to ask that I think I know the answer to. You don't let pricing affect balance, correct? Uh, I am not the team. The design team does not dictate like the series of a card that's something like we consult on with our product team as to kind of okay what they would like to do and we are experimenting with different things like obviously we've changed a lot about card acquisition over the course of the year um and i can't dive into like you know what we've learned and all of that stuff uh but we are constantly learning we've still got a lot of things to try and work through and kind of understand how they affect uh what is most satisfying for players so we're going to continue to do that um but yeah like i i don't design cards that way uh we identify the cards that you know we designs processes we identify what the season's going to be about we identify the characters we're going to design cards for we start designing cards for those characters uh some number of months later we show those cards to some other people right like that's uh that's basically like our synopsized uh process yeah because like i was really i was really intrigued by this season right because the one card pretty much everyone agrees is like okay this card's gonna be broken is mobius and he's at 3k right and when you look at the pricing on these cards this season's cards it seems to me as though oh literally they just priced it based on what's cool like what's the biggest coolest thing that's 6k who are the two little like humanoid guys who like have hate bear effects or whatever like maybe little finicky things those are 3k like that that really struck me i was like oh they're definitely not pricing on power here they're doing like the opposite of that they're pricing on splash i think that's a valid interpretation glenn how do you what do you think about what is the power of an intellectual property like Marvel behind a game like Snap? How important is it f- for a new game to have an intellectual property like that? Because I'll be honest, I was not a fan of Marvel before Marvel Snap. It had no, I was no consideration to me playing the game, and it actually it does not contribute to my enjoyment of the game. But I have noticed through YouTube comments, through friends people like that, that there are people that were drawn to the game by Marvel and some people that play it just to play characters that they like in Marvel. How important is it to a new game success to have a powerful IP? We're seeing tons of games do this, right? Disney Lorcana just came out, you know, we One Piece, etc. We see big IPs being released behind these card games. Just talk to me a little bit about that. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting element of the market. Um, it's kind of funny because I think it plays both ways. And I think even some of the examples you gave. So, um, like, it's nice to have an IP. Certainly, mm -hmm. like, you get a, a built-in audience that you can cater your game towards, perhaps. Um, but at the same time, you also maybe, like, that maybe that's constraining on the game, right? Like, um, I, we can take Marvel Snap as a reasonable example. Like, Marvel Snap, Marvel's a really popular IP. If Marvel Snap was... Uh, I'm pick some pick hyper like if Marvel Snap was uh what was it artifact like if that was the structure of Marvel Snap right like that would just be a big miss the Marvel audience isn't the I want to play three locations and this hyper complex game that's really got a ton of numbers and highly granular pieces like that's the Marvel audience is the core mainstream consumer audience of America right they're the people who go to movies and and watch. Uh, Thor beat up whoever Thor's beating up this in this movie. Uh, so like that's that's a, that speaks to why it's important Marvel Snap be a clean, accessible experience because we want all of the people who can enjoy a Marvel movie to potentially be able to enjoy a Marvel Snap game. We want those those audiences to line up. Uh, and I don't I don't say that to like knock on Artifact. Like what's Artifact's target audience, right? Like the game didn't do very well, but its target audience was Dota players, right? Like that's the that is very much the kind of game that yeah, they want to play. So. They're psychos. They're, like, there's so I, much going on there. <laughs> I have a lot of great friends who play Dota. I don't personally play Dota, but that's the game. Like, the, it makes sense that you might target players that way, right? Um, yep. So, Lorcana is kind of in an interesting case to me because I feel like Lorcana, I, I feel like Lorcana was Marvel Snap was like a game in search of an IP, right? Like, mm -hmm. kind kind of. Um, it's you know this highly accessible thing. We need there's got to be an IP that makes sense for it, and they they happen to work together really well, and boom. Fireworks. Again, I, I didn't work here during that time, but that's kind of how it, it seems like it went. Um, but Lorcana is the, I feel like the opposite. Disney's got, you know, Disney's like, hey, we've got Disney. Disney's great. Uh, we could really use a game because that's like a market that we see there's a lot of success in. We'd like to you know, dip our toes and get something going over there so that people can learn and enjoy Disney in a totally different place. We already know that they enjoy Disney. Mm -hmm. We just want to give them one, one more place to do it. Um, which to be fair, maybe that was even you know how Marvel kind of approached the relationship with Second Dinner. I don't know, um, but that's kind of what I see as that. So in that case, like the game is often born from the interest when that's the case, right? Like I, you know, it's kind of a chicken and the egg kind of conversation. Like I think in Lorcana's case, my my assumption is Disney came first, game came second, right? Um, but that's not necessarily true of all games. And the IP gives you a built-in audience, but it can be constraining. Um, the bigger factor, I think, is like if you're not going to have an IP, a built-in audience of some kind, you got to have some other plan for creating up, creating that audience or covering that audience disparity. Um, which maybe that's just you know you spend an extra several million dollars on marketing or advertising, like that might be the solution to your problem, right? Maybe that's you charge up front for the game instead of trying to do like DLC. Maybe it means you do both. Like I think we see that with stuff. Um, What's another like Overwatch is like a fine example, right? Like that's a, a game that came from a totally new IP, essentially. Um, mm. And yeah, you know, they pushed. Project how did Titan? they push on Overwatch? Was it yeah, before? I, yeah, I know it has a little bit of a history, but for players, it was largely new. But what was their strategy when bringing that to market? Right, like they have these cinematics to introduce mm -hmm. new characters. Characters have super differing silhouettes; they're identifiable at a glance. They do skins, but that they can do skins because the silhouettes are so different. Um, and how do you? Where, you know, where do they learn that kind of thing from? Like you go back into other games like League of Legends did that very well. Like, um, so that's, I think there's, you can definitely succeed without an IP. Like, I, but I do think an IP lets you maybe redirect attention elsewhere, maybe comes at a cost of how you have to build your game. 
And in some cases, that constraint's great. Like, I would argue that for Marvel Snap, the fact that, you know, Marvel being, Marvel being a property that's key and awesome to have be, like, really accessible for players leads to creating a really accessible game. And I think that's where a ton of Marvel Snap success is from, is being an accessible game. To what degree is Blizzard its own IP? Like, the fact that Overwatch yeah. is a Blizzard game, to what degree, like, if you, would say- as Second Dinner were you had this game you knew it was awesome but you weren't able to land a deal with marvel like that would like you talked about the fireworks both parts are required right so if you're a smaller studio i can't speak to that since this is the first small studio i've been a part of uh sure (laughs) so it's a little trickier for me to have a educated opinion especially when i wasn't here for the the history of this particular one um but yeah, like I, I would say Blizzard is a, a brand more so than maybe an intellectual property, just a, a subtle distinction I would I would say to make. But yeah, like a Blizzard game, you know what you're kind of getting from yeah. a Blizzard game. Like there's there are elements of Blizzard games that kind of run through, like you know, you a, a Blizzard customer can trust that they'll kind of get a certain experience um within a spectrum. Um but one of those part one part of that experience is like there will be some kind of narrative cohesion like and you know the narrative cohesion of World of Warcraft and Starcraft and Overwatch are very and I assume Valorant I've never actually played Valorant are are very different uh but they have some some similar ideals that have demonstrated like you know Blizzard knows this is how we communicate uh these individual intellectual properties within the language of our brand mm-hmm. All right, Glenn, I, I want to ask you a bit of a personal question of mine, not a personal question for you, but I'm going to make an assumption that you existed in the 90s. So the 90s was known for a bit of a TCG <laughs> renaissance, as it could be called. There was a lot of TCGs coming out for better and for worse. That cycle seems to be cyclical and seems to be happening again right now, right? We see so many trading card games coming out, so many new IPs, you know, big IPs, but also independent IPs, things like Grand Archive, Algamancy, you know, a million Kickstarter, Sorcery, etc. Just as a person who may have sort of experienced that the last time that happened, can you just talk to me a little bit about what's going on right now with all these card games coming out and just your thoughts on it? Yeah, it's. I think this is a pretty different renaissance from the last one, um, mostly because of two things. I think one is the existence of the digital world is like totally different, um, and the other is possibly a biased opinion, but is magic, and specifically is magic becoming a billion dollar brand? Mm. Um, I think that really those words change the understanding Wait, of a lot actually? of businesses. Uh, like a, I mean, Wizards became Wizards became a billion dollar uh, company, like a couple of years ago or you're i don't know right. it was magic. it was is that like the main uh, magic, driver there is that what we're talking about magic is the vast majority of wizards is revenue and it's the largest i believe the largest source of revenue in like all of hasbro by like a meaningful factor um so yeah there's it's a bit it's a big big thing uh in a way that it was not when all of that stuff happened before like magic's like i mean you can just look at the number of products magic mm-hmm. makes like magic yeah from when i was hired at wizards to now it makes easily twice as many new cards a year right like easily uh and the value of the company and the number of employees changed somewhat commensurately right uh so i think that's what people are seeing and i can like that's obviously like only my perspective but i think that that makes sense like that's i think that's part of what maybe drove disney to towards Lorcana, right as they see like oh like this is something like Disney wasn't coming around to build like, you know, the next, I don't, 
I don't mean it disparagingly at all, but I mean yeah. like Disney isn't like we need flesh and blood, right? Like no, <laughs> Disney's like we we want. Let's be honest. We if want a billion have, dollar brand. I, I, I mean it disparagingly. Yeah, no, if it didn't <laughs> say no, Dis- if it didn't like, say Disney the on the box, honestly, it yeah. would have it would have been a hard sell if it didn't have Disney on the box. Like, that, it's actually sure, very I, funny when you look at the design of Lorcana. I haven't actually played the game at all. I just kind of like read the rules and I was like, okay, it's kind yeah. of like Duel Masters basically, um, or Kaijudo, it seems like. Uh, but yeah, the that's what got Disney interested. I would I would assume. I don't know. I don't you know. I don't speak to anybody at Disney, um, that, at least that I know. So that's the kind of thing. I, but I have had you know like I've had hedge fund managers like reach out to me on LinkedIn to be like, hey, like could you talk to us about TCGs? Like we want to know how they work. <laughs> what? Like that's that's an experience that I'd never had before, and it you know started. I think it correlates uh, to a pretty specific uh, point in time. Mm. So I think that's one thing that's going on. Uh, and the other is, yeah, like the digital space, like you don't have to spend money to print cards anymore, right? Like you can just put them yeah. on on a digital space. Like that's a huge thing. Like that's one of the things like Magic's still dealing with that. Even now there are complications from having to manage relationships with all, all of the people who, the vendors who create Magic cards. Like that's a meaningful um, constraint on exactly what Magic does mm-hmm. is the fact that they have to print them in paper and sell them in booster packs. Um, it's Pokemon, uh, is similarly constrained. Like Pokemon has a a pretty great digital app. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the app is actually structured in such a way that you buy real life paper cards and redeem it into the app. Like that's something that no other, no new game would do, right? Like there's just no reason to have that. Um, but Pokemon didn't come from a new game. It came from Pokemon. So it needs that. Uh, so that's why I think those are the two things I think are really, basically it's like kind of. Uh, the California gold rush or whatever, you know, like yeah. somebody has hit, like everybody wants to get in again. And that was what happened way back when, like, that was why we saw that first Renaissance was like Yu-Gi-Oh following up on magic. And then Pokemon like that was, those were like big hits. Like people were like, okay, they're like, let's really, let's go for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, even wizards, and that's that. why wizards launched a bunch of card games. So, and that's why you're the reigning, uh, you know, world champion runner up of the <laughs> show card game. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. I think that it's, you know, honestly, I do think that Magic being a billion dollar company, Wizards being a billion dollar company, is a big part of it. But I think, you know, a lot of what's leading to so many card games now is actually like some of the smaller publishers, like every single tcg kickstarter i see is half a million dollars a million dollars quarter million dollars for you know a draft board game like algamancy just came out uh caleb gannon does mm-hmm. cube for magic you know he raised like almost half a million dollars like it's incredible i wonder the sustainability of sort of uh you know how frequently we're getting them because of consumer fatigue you know how much how many tcgs can a consumer play because tcgs are fundamentally you know in terms of how you acquire a collection, a very, very inefficient board game. And I do wonder, you know, how many can come onto the market before we sort of repeat the cycle that we saw back in the 90s, which is you know, not all of them survive. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's definitely just going to happen. Um, like, I would not what I would not go work on like those other games. Like if it were my decision, like I, I'm obviously making decisions for my career or whatever. But like if I wanted to work on a paper TCG, like it would just be magic. That's where I would be working. Um, so like those these other games like do some interesting stuff. I think there's a ton of things to learn from, but ultimately it just seems so likely to me that like the ultimate outcome for tons of paper-based card games is they are successful for some number of months or years. Uh, and then the coolest stuff from their game design gets incorporated into magic one day. And that's kind of how it goes. Um, maybe that's not how it goes. I mean, eventually somebody theoretically is going to change that paradigm, but that's just been what's happened for decades now at this point. Um, 
And we see kind of the reverse too. Like I think Flesh and Blood is a good example in that it's in some ways like a reaction to the success of Magic's Commander format. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what, of all the games, I think that's what Flesh and Blood most closely feels like an analog to is literally Magic the as Commander. Um, it's not Magic as Magic, right? Like mm -hmm. it's different. Yeah. Um, and even that format is totally like based on other stuff like that format reminds me of some ways and of like dragon ball z even so yeah yeah i think flesh and blood is closer to a fighting game rather than any other any other card game it also capitalized off of the uh, the announcement that magic was suspending its pro tour and it came out and it was like boom million dollar pro yes. tour, right so i think that, that really helped out flesh and blood but you know it's really interesting when we talk about commander and magic you know magic being a game that has survived and sort of flourished for so long and somewhat off the back of the commander format i see a lot of these new cart new games coming out now and they try to implement a commander format into their game and it just it's consistently unsuccessful right like this multiplayer format that has somewhat prompted up magic just to be seems to be so serendipitous and it's like i can't i don't see any other publishers being able to capture the essence of what is commander because it's much more than just a multiplayer card format with your friends just what I just I just want to get your thoughts yeah. on Commander and the success of that format. I do think it's been captured again in different places, but it's kind of tricky to see. Um, the examples I'll use, I think the big, the probably the biggest slash most successful one I would say is probably Slay the Spire. Mm -hmm. um, like Slay the Spire doesn't have like the depth, the breadth of commandership in it, but like it's still like you know you choose your identity. Like I'm going to be the fighter. I'm going to be the whatever, uh, and you go through and build your deck and, like, have this journey. And that's what is at the, like, core essence of Commander is, like, I'm going to limit what I'm able to do to what correctly expresses this character. Uh, and then from there, it can get, like, totally wild. Like, you know, competitive Commander is obviously like, no, that character doesn't matter. I'm blue. I'm going to do all the bro broken blue stuff. That's a totally different thing. Uh, but it is still restricted in some ways to a choice. Like, I made a choice that's going to limit what I can do, and then I'm going to go from there to expand it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that, and I think like, that's the kind of choice flesh and blood has that is a really elegant and, uh, and a good, a choice that makes a lot of sense and has a lot of good flavor in that game from my understanding of it. I haven't played my, I've played like the starter decks a few times, basically. Mm. So do you, um, do you think the commander is hinged off of player identity, players empathizing yes. with a specific deck and then being able to that's, engage without their friends? That's what I think is the lesson that games should be taking away from commander. And I think many have is that the the thing a commander does most well is creates this piece of identity a player can tie themselves to in their deck. Like, I don't have a red-white deck, you know? I have an Aurelia deck. Like, I like Aurelia. I don't like Cole or whoever else. Like, that. you know, that's the that's really important. That's a meaningful thing uh, that lots of games didn't necessarily have, uh, even though they're great games. Uh, can take a look back, like, I compare, I mentioned Slay, like, you know, look at stuff like Dominion or Ascension, like, you're not a character in those games, at least not in the early ones, Ascension actually had an expansion somewhat later on, where you kind of were a character, um, which is cool, and then they came out with Ascension Tactics, like, I don't know, two years ago, which is very much in that space, um, so yeah, that's what I think the Commander format has really taught uh, as to, like the most successful learning from game design is really you know tie people into what they're doing like and that's what made magic successful in the first place too was magic you know you you were a red white deck at first like that mm -hmm. was like I like red and white I'm a red white player and now you get to be more specific and, and isolate that and distill it further into a different ideological space so I think that that's uh, really awesome and the people who came up with the commander format which unlike so many other things in games like that is a fan created thing like I think. 
I think that's true of like Dota as well, right? Like mm-hmm. Dota is a kind yeah. of mm-hmm. fan origin thing. Uh, yeah. So those are two two kind of like titans of uh gaming in that sense that things that came from players and ultimately are like changing the the paradigm of their the industry and their specific genres. Um yeah. I uh as a dedicated sunglasses of Arza main I am a big fan of red-white combos here. Did I just drop a reference to a magic card you didn't get, or did you get that one? So I don't remember what Sunglasses of Urza does specifically, but I do know it, it lets exists. you tap. <laughs> I think what it is is it lets you tap for either red or white, if I recall correctly. It's like a, it's that like the worst. Sound right? But... <laughs> let me hold on. Let me let me Google it. <laughs> I was pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. You may spend white okay. mana as though it were red mana. Oh yeah, See, yeah, 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 dedicated sunglasses of Urza main. They are some absolutely incredible sunglasses, by the way. Absolutely phenomenal. I don't know what they were thinking when they made that card, but it's very. It's one <laughs> of the like. It's I remember it two decades later, right? Mm-hmm. So there is there is that to be said for sunglasses of Urza. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the power uh, of story, the power of incredibly cool lenses. Like, have you seen them? Seriously, go go look them up. They look amazing. I want them in real life. They're phenomenal. <laughs> they would look incredible on me. Um, I, I did. I did have one. Brendan got to ask you the personal question. I've got a personal question. As someone who has made no secret of my ambitions at some point to try my hand at design development. What is the number one thing I should be doing that I'm currently not doing? Well, I can't speak super well to what you're currently not doing, but I can tell you what I consider like some of the things that have differentiated me in my career over time. Okay. Uh, which I think in general are kind of different, differing markers between like junior designers and more senior designers. Um, the first is some ties into a lot of the stuff we talked about earlier in the podcast, which is like you are making a product for consumers. Like uh, nobody, nobody is coming to the supermarket and being like, where's the aisle for balanced games? Right. Like that's not what they ask. Like they're looking for content or an experience and they want it to be balanced. Like imbalance can make their content or experience not as good. Um, But that's not necessarily like balance. Balance doesn't necessarily mean like perfect balance. Right. Like the imperfect balance is the most fun thing in games like League and Snap Mm -hmm. are two games that are imperfectly balanced and they exist in that spectrum. Like that's that's just how things work. Um, is that the games shift and change and different things are good at different times and some things are too good for too long or whatever. It happens. Um, so Im- imperfect balance is better than perfect balance. Chess is, you know, not literal perfectly balanced, but a fine example of like a yes. super balanced uh, game. But is chess like exciting for some people? Yes. But uh, I would say by and large, the average consumer is not like finding chess exciting by their conventional definition of exciting. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's probably the biggest one. Yeah, it's just like, you, you are making a product um, and you have to learn to think about it in that lens. Related to that lens is you are making a product for lots of different people. So like people are some people are supposed to like some stuff and hate other stuff. If they liked everything, then you're doing it wrong because you're missing out on space that you could be mining. Um, R- Mark Rosewater has a great design talk. Honestly, if you want to become a game designer, I would also encourage you to just read tons of Mark Rosewater. He has been giving the best free course on game design for like decades mm-hmm. now uh, in his weekly column. Um, it's so, it is so long and spanning, it's difficult for me to even find the columns that I would recommend. Uh, but he did a GDC talk that is, I believe, freely available on YouTube. That's like 20 years, 20 lessons. Great talk if you're interested in game design. Strongly recommend it. In general, GDC talks are awesome to 
to listen to anyway. If you actually wanted a list of some, I recommend I can send you that later. Because uh, I do keep that list. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things Mark calls out in that talk is, yeah, like you don't want people, you would rather people like love and hate. Like those are strong emotions. You want strong emotions around your game. Like if people don't care, then yeah, they don't care. <laughs> the the yeah. game is just not that important to them. So that's whenever I, you know, am, am bombarded by people who are frustrated on Discord or Twitter, like I keep that in mind. It's like, all it tells me is that this person cares a lot about my game and that that's just a, a better reason for me to continue being a good steward of the game and making the best decisions I can. Um, so those are, I think, like two two pretty big lessons are like, yeah, just holding on to it's a product and holding on to learning to look at it from all of the lenses that players can, can perceive it by. Um, but also you have to be objective about that. You can't like people, sometimes players are right for sure, but more often players, when someone says I'm having a bad experience, they definitely know that that's true. You should listen to that. When they tell you yeah. why they're having a bad experience, they might not have that right. Right. Like that's, that's tricky space yeah. to navigate. Um, they, they, you may not always know exactly what's going on there. No, I'm a big believer that like for most people, they're not able to look beyond I lost and this sucks or I won and this is awesome. And yeah, there's a know, great, I struggle with that plenty. There's a the, great the, game the, design the, quote. I forget who said it, but it's something like when it's not a problem if paper is better, like if paper is the best thing in your game, like that's not a problem. But when paper doesn't like beating rock, that's a problem. Like when the best thing is is bad, or like the when being yeah. the best thing is an, is unfun. Like that's a another yeah. good one that I've I've always kept in mind for player perspective. That resonates. <laughs> it's Can you? This is something I've heard. I don't know if it's apocryphal. Maybe you'll be able to confirm deny. But like in Magic Arena, there's like a little "Did you enjoy this?" you know experience, mm -hmm. uh, smiley face, unsmiley face thing. I have heard that the biggest determinant of that is just whoever won. They're clicking the smiley face a lot more than, than anything else. Is that is that in line with your experience? Can you confirm slash deny yeah. on that? I I would assume that that is true. That that is a large bias in that sample, but it's also an easy bias to correct. You just you know sure. set each sample against uh, the win loss result when you're cross referencing, sure. and then you can kind of get an idea of like, okay, what else might have happened that was frustrating. Um, God, this is crazy. I feel like we could talk for literally three hours, four <laughs> hours, five hours. Like, I feel like we could just keep going. It's actually killing me that we have like a normal podcast that we can't go eight hours on. Glenn, I have a question <laughs> for you. Follow, follow up. Would you be willing sure. to come back on? Sure. Yeah, I can do that sometime. Because like it feels like there's so much depth here and we like covered. It almost feels like what we covered today is like the intro. Does that make sense? Do you, do you feel that way, Brendan? Sure. Is it just me? Lots of knowledge. Okay. I mean, Glenn, genuinely, it's it's really interesting talking to people like yourself. I mean, you have, I mean, what I could only articulate as a lot of wisdom when it comes to card design, card games, the history of them, and I think, and I believe the future as well. And that's why it's so interesting to talk to you is because, you know, we look at, you take, you look at Marvel Snap, you take it in such a, if, if you look at it alone, you take it in such a small, uh, sort of a vacuum, right? But it's not, it's the... I don't know. It's the accumulation of just years and years of experience, and that's sort of what has led to us playing yeah. such a such a good game. And like you know, talking to someone like yourself, we kind of get to pull back the curtain and see the mind. 
behind what creates an experience like that. And it's, I don't know, it, genuinely, it's fascinating. Honestly, I'll tell you that you, yes. in one of your, while you were talking, you actually answered a question that I've been asking myself about flesh and blood for a few years now. And it's like, what has detracted away from the enjoyment of flesh and blood as we've progressed through the years? And I've had players come up to me, I was previously at US Nationals um, in Las Vegas about three weeks ago, and they would come, they would complain to me, I would say, but why do you think that? I mean, we look at the meta, the, the meta, the meta pie of decks that are playable is so much more diverse than it's ever been. You know, many different decks are winning events. It feels like you can play any deck that you want to um, and not be sort of, you know, inting before you get to the tournament. So why do you not enjoy this aspect? And I think what it came down to is as some of the more powerful heroes and strategies rotated out of flesh and blood, the decks lost their sort of identity like the people that used to play chain are no longer chain players mm. and the decks have become more homogenous and more mid-rangey and it has just it's been a bit samey like there are multiple aggro decks yes but they fundamentally they kind of feel and do the same thing and i think that the identity behind some of the decks in flesh and blood and what made it so popular and so fun and so unique in the beginning has been lost a bit to balance um but it's always it's hard for me to evaluate because i think i have a strong bias towards the nostalgic experience mm. that i had two to three years ago playing the game but I had so many people yeah. come up to me during the week and they're like, oh, I hate this meta. I'm like, how, how could you say that? I mean, we look at the meta, the statistics, they're fantastic. You know, it's great. But there's just something about, I think, what was core to the essence of flesh and blood that has started to sort of, I don't know, go away as, you know, internal mechanisms through the through Living Legend, which is a rotating sort of a rotation of heroes that occurs based off points that are won at tournaments so it's self-correcting and through design not trying to push design because you know some of these older heroes are a bit crazy like there were heroes that could necropotence their whole entire deck you know there were heroes that fundamentally didn't interact and you know they weren't necessarily healthy for the game but they did have a very very strong identity yeah i don't you know had had necro on a stick oh yeah oh yeah I, you you haka show had future sight on a stick so uh yeah and yogs will on a stick that was a fun game nice uh, that's awesome so, yeah uh, the I don't know Flesh and Blood well enough to speak to that example, but I do know that exactly is what happened to Legends of Runeterra a while ago, um, and they they had to correct for it. They had been balancing the game for I don't I don't know how long exactly, like a couple years maybe at some point, and then they wound up doing a large rebalance because they realized so much of what they had done had been like you know the core spell cards for like deny and I think Molten Rain was one like they had been nerfing these cards and it had gotten to the point where it was muddying the identity of like what each faction was supposed to be good at. Where it's like well if you're nerfing all of Bilgewater's like go wide burn spells then Bilgewater's not the go wide burn faction, right? Like it, it's yeah. it's much closer to whoever's second place. So you got to restore the disparity because that's your color pie. Like you need some kind of distinction between them to be loud and pronounced. And you got to find another way to address the imbalance. It can't just be mm-hmm. like nerfing all of the things that give the faction its identity. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was so, one of the most interesting changes they had to make because it was a pretty significant list of balance updates. And most of it was just change the card back to how it was in a lot of spots. Uh, and I thought that was super fascinating. Like that was a learning moment for me as a game designer to like see what had happened to their game and like think it through critically and be like, oh, okay, like, yeah, good to know. I, I will keep that in mind for the future. <laughs> as an aggro gamer, like that's just in, in games where that is a thing, that's what I play, right? Like that's what I like doing. I like putting the pressure on. That's That's how I like to play. One of the things I've noticed about Marvel Snap is it feels like there's not a lot of ways to actually do that. Like, what what would you have for someone like me who's like, you know, if I took one of those every time I take one of those magic color quizzes, it's like red. And then if they get a little bit more dynamic, it's like teamer. Right. 
And so, it, but like primary and red there, right? What is yeah. there for me if I like doing that other than, you know, the entire game because it's very fast? Like, yeah. yeah, I think that's where it appeals to you most. So it's inter it's interesting because Magix has a color pie uh, and I've had to adapt that to different IPs a few times. Um, but Snap does not have uh, a color pie per se. Like there are some themes like the spider people moving or whatever, but I wouldn't say that's a yeah. color pie because uh, the, the difference between a theme and a color pie is that the color pie is like a mechanical foundation of your game. Mm -hmm. It's how you create um, distinction and, and balance and disparity to make sure that everything is good. So like the closest thing Snap has to a color pie is like, you know, Shang-Chi, Iron Man, Hulk or whatever, like in early series where it was like kind of this uh, rock, paper, scissors situation, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> That's that's the closest thing they that's really there is how those elements kind of intersect into what's stronger versus what whatever else. Um, so Snap just doesn't really have a color pie. They have themes that you can enjoy and identify with, um, but it does have the psychographics, uh, which are were first proposed by a guy named Bartle, I think, uh, and then Mark Rosewater has the version that Magic uses that has become much more popular, which is uh, like Spike. Timmy, Johnny, and then Mary uh, would be the the fourth one. Uh, I don't recall. I think Mark is doesn't. I think Mark believes something different about Mary, but I believe in Mary. We'll say it that way. Uh, and those are you know Spike is winning is what matters most to me. Timmy is doing something big and spectacular is what matters most to me. Johnny is doing something clever is what matters most to me. And Mary is more about like the the connection of playing a game with someone. Like how are we? It's it's a, the social gamer, which is what Commander uh, caters really strongly to. And I forget Bartle's specific taxonomy. He uses something like killer, achiever, something else. Um, so the, a little less friendly than Timmy and Spike and whatnot. <laughs> so yeah, like that's what I think Snap does have in spades. You know, like if you want to do like Living Tribunal, like that's Timmy Gaming right there. You know, yeah. like, I'm just gonna make this huge <laughs> number. Um, Wong, Wong Odin is even more. That's Tim, that's Timmy Gaming too. You know, uh, and then. There's all kinds of, like, Johnny is kind of woven into a lot of different uh, little weird spots. But, like, I, I put a Johnny deck out this week on, on Twitter. My, like, you know, Jane Foster yellow jacket wasp deck. I think that's a Johnny deck. Really? Like, it has, Timmy, it has Timmy moments in that you're, like, you know, making a big hit monkey or whatever. But, like, the Johnny element is, like, how do I make Jane Foster, like, mm. this thing? Like, I want it to be, like, a linchpin. Interesting. Building a deck around Jane Foster. That's what I think, like, that's why I think it's more of a Johnny deck than a Timmy deck. Galactus it, it has, deck. Everything, no, everything like bleeds over. A Johnny over. deck is like every Arnim Zola deck ever made. Yeah, Ar right. that's a good one too. I think, but those <laughs> also have Timmy elements too. You know, like a twenty-four power Venom or a thirty yeah. power. Those are those are Timmy. So like, yeah, a lot of this. That's what I think is really cool about Marvel Snap is like, there's so much bleed among the psychographics, and Magic has that too. But I don't think quite as often as Marvel Snap does, or at least in as loud. You know, like mono mono red. Like there aren't a lot of mono red Johnnies, right? Like that's just not a a thing that like is enabled very often there's some like it's not it's not never around um but yeah like that's a difference is that like magic's archetypes tend to like really isolate towards like single psychographics a little more often and i think snap doesn't like i think snap is incorporating two a ton of the time um i mean you can run really a cool. red johnny in commander for sure you can. yeah yeah i'm not i don't think any combinations like impossible at all i was just like with snap like like that what you said with arnim so like it's totally it's incidentally there right if you want to be yeah an Arnim Zola Johnny gamer, you're going to also be an Arnim Zola Timmy gamer. Like that you can't do one without the other very easily. I, I, I will say, cause like one of the cards I always wished was a card I could actually play was crystal, right? Because the first thing mm -hmm. I thought when I looked at crystal was like, Oh my God, 
I'm going to get so far ahead and then I'm going to play Crystal and I'm going to refill my hand. It's going to be the coolest thing. This is back when she drew three, refilled yeah. three. And that entire style of gameplay just kind of isn't a thing in Snap because of the constraints yep. of board space. And mm -hmm. it's it's such an it's such an odd thing because like that's what I want to do. Like there's nothing for me as that style of player where it's like, all right, I want to get really ahead and slam the door, right? And in, in Snap, I have to do like a bunch of other things in order to, you know? So yep. it's it's definitely like an interesting, it's been an interesting experience for me as someone who, like the way I thrive is put pressure on, make them make mistakes. And in Snap, that's a very different thing. Yeah. It is really funny to me because I see so much archetype description that doesn't like line up with what I would personally do, but uh, you know, people bring whatever language in they have. So you know, like yeah. I see people talk about like aggro or, or control and snap. And I'm just like, I don't even, what are you? I don't even think that's about? real. But, like, yeah, I, I, I've been thinking about this for a while. Like, I don't think that's real. There's like, there's no aggro because aggro is fundamentally about reducing your opponent's life total to zero in a game with <laughs> no life totals. Like that's not real. There is combo. Yeah. yeah. But if I, there, there is, Point slam, yeah. combo, location, control, or denial. Yeah, it's like yeah. that, if, right? If like I was going to little... describe, like, it's funny, if I was trying to define what I thought an aggro deck would do in Snap, it would be, like, present a strong card early and snap. Like, that's, like, the, okay. the, like that's the closest thing to, like, shortening the span of the game, right? I'm going to make you make a high-intensity decision before you have enough information to know what's going to happen. It's the equivalent of like, if if you could snap while playing magic on like turn three, it's like, do you have a Wrath of God in your hand or not? Like, are you willing to <laughs> chance it? Like, yeah, you know, like that's yes. the that's the vibe you would want to try and create yeah. if you were trying to be an aggro deck and snap. But it's difficult because a lot of decks can snap very early on if mm. they want to. Like, you know, you don't you don't have to be planning to. You, a lot of decks can just decide to do that. Like, I just want to lightning bolt people, Glenn. Let me lightning bolt people. Snapping maybe in the next game. Snapping is <laughs> such a way to do that. Like the concept of snapping in in a card game is such it's it's so it's oh, such yeah. an interesting dynamic. That, yeah, that like obviously it's core to Marvel Snap and sort of the crux of the game. But I honestly like I have played other games since playing Marvel Snap, and I've played them online, whether it be Hearthstone or Disney Lorcana sort of emulator, and not having the ability to snap feels foreign in a card game now, especially a digital card yeah. game. It being able to increase the stakes off of a sort of non-deterministic future or semi-deterministic future is just like part of what is card gaming <laughs> to me at this point. Glenn, I want to ask you a question, which I think I'm vicariously asking uh, for someone else, but it came up on a previous podcast we have. If someone is wants to become a game designer, but they have no experience and they're looking to get their start, they have no portfolio, how do you make that first step? Because that seems to be the hardest. It seems like once you get your, your mm -hmm. foot in the door, you know, you can develop a portfolio, you can work for a few years and that will, yeah. you know, th th there's a ladder there. But the initial sort of gig, getting into it the first time. How does someone make that jump? Because a lot of players, you know, do aspire to become game designers. Yeah, my answer is kind of funny because I actually kind of hate college as a principal. That's a whole other podcast topic. Uh, but I'm not a big fan of how college is structured in, in America. Uh, but I do think that actually game design is one, like that instruction is one of the better ways to get into game design. Um, not just because you get like a piece of paper that tells people, you know, how to go to class or whatever. Um, but like you learn language, like the language that you need to speak in, like being able to talk about like, you know, the atom of a game or like top down design versus bottom up design, like that kind of stuff. Like you, you will learn that stuff and that's important. Uh, but also game design courses 
at least good ones in my opinion, uh, will give you the tools you need to make a game, which is ultimately like going to be the best thing you could do for trying to get your foot in the door is to have something you can point mm -hmm. at to show people like this. I made this. I understand how this works. Uh, you can ask me about this and I can tell you about it. I can, I can tell you what mistakes I made. I can tell you what I would do better next time. Like that kind of stuff. That's all like really important, uh, to be able to build confidence in a, with, within a game designer in an interview. Um, because that's another thing is like becoming a game designer. Isn't just about like, you know, having these skills. It's actually about passing in an interview or a number of interviews. Like every job is like that, but at least most jobs are like that. Um, but people don't really necessarily think of them as that kind of a game, but that's what getting a job is. It's a game and the interview is one of the levels, right? Like you have to learn how to play the interview level. Um, so that's what I, I would say is the big kind of the biggest tool in game design is like doing some kind of instruction. It doesn't have to be, you know, you go to college and get a BA in game design. I, I do think that's probably a waste of your time and money. Um, but I do think like taking a course uh, on game design, you know, like a, a, a single certificate or like a 10 week thing or, um, going to GDC even for, you know, a year or something like that, like that, those kinds of things do, do pay off. Like they give you connections and they give you the opportunity to learn uh, and to give you the tools in many cases to make your own game. I will say like that's making your own game, huge, huge undertaking in an endeavor, but uh, worth doing. Uh, even if you can't necessarily make a full game, uh, doing a lot of the steps, like building a game design document, coming up with a pitch that you might give a publisher on your game, like building a, a prototype or a paper demo of some kind, like, all of these are useful things that you can talk about in an interview, which again, like that's that's the actual kind of weird key to becoming a game designer is being good at doing game design interviews and just design tests, which are another, uh, usually a level before the design interview. But um, you're really trying to think about getting the job as a game unto itself and what are the things you can equip your character with that will get you through each of those levels. And I think that game design instruction, even though I, Again, I'm not a big fan of college in general is actually oddly enough a, a really a pretty good investment right now if you're finding like a good program that's a good value and will give you the skills that you need. Yeah. I think having that portfolio, you know, even if you don't have a professional portfolio yet, but having something you can point towards that you that you've worked on, whether it's a side project or, you know, whatever, that helps a lot because it's a it's a if it's a reference point that you can sort of continue the conversation with and something that people can point to that, you know, you have some some sort of experience here, because I th think that's the hardest part is people people look at the process and they assume that they're going to go from, you know, from nothing or being in a vacuum to a game design interview with no reference material. It's important to have that reference point, I think. Yeah. And there's also like. There are game designers and then there are like like specific game designers, I'd say like one, you know, we've hired for the snap team or reviewed people. Um, and one of the things like I make sure to kind of think through is like, you know, is this person a, des a designer for whatever they worked on before, or are they a game designer? Like, can they, can those, can they translate those skills to these other areas, to these other things? Cause like magic is famous for hiring, you know, like professional magic players mm -hmm. internally so, into magic well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they've, and that's worked out. Um, like those, many of those people are awesome at their job. I love so many of those people. Uh, I would even go as far as to say, I probably would not have become a game designer at Wizards if it weren't for the fact that I had a minor competitive background. Like that was a factor in hiring me that was considered a benefit. Um, but like also while they're there, that's on them to like continue to add skills if they want to be able to design games other than magic. You're not going to just be a professional magic player, work on magic games, you know, for forever, and then be able to, you know, go out and design the next, you know, 
tabletop RPG or massive multiplayer online game. Like those, that's not how it works, right? Like you have to actually continue your own education and build skills. Um, so that is another way you can do it is finding a game that hires its, its players or hires people who have been successful within it in another way. Um, and that gives you that launching pad to do it. Cause that's certainly how it worked out for me. Like, you know, I did not go to a game design course until I was a game designer. Um, but I like I I was I was a game designer and I went to like an introductory game design certificate and I got that certificate because I was like you know I want to make sure I'm gonna be as good at this as I can be I, I want to further my education. Mm-hmm. Hit me up if y'all ever decide to start doing that. <laughs> doing what? If y'all ever decide to start bringing in players as balanced people, if that ever happens in Snap, <laughs> hit me up. Hit my DMs. That's my real. That's my real. That's my pitch. All right. Um. That. I mean, this has been this has been unbelievable, Brendan. Do you have anything else on the on the list? No, we I good? just I just I just have to thank Glenn for being. I have to thank you, Glenn, for that being so generous with your time. Um, you know, on the podcast, and I think that you're a tre- yeah. you're a tremendous ambassador for the game. And that second dinner is lucky to have you. That you can sort of articulate. I don't know the design process over to us as players. It only boosts our confidence in the game and makes us just love it even more. So I really appreciate you coming on the. Thanks. It was a it was a good time. Yeah, I, I I came into this podcast having just lost a couple eight cubers, <laughs> and, and 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 now at the end of the podcast, I'm like, man, I'm so grateful I'm in a position to do this. My rank doesn't matter. I'll be fine. <laughs> like, and that's that's a rare that's a rare uh, thing to induce in me. You know, like normally I do not feel like that. I do not feel like that. Normally I'm like, all right, if I lose rank, no one will ever listen to me again. But like. I uh, I came away from this being like, I'm just really lucky to be able to have the opportunity to do what I'm doing right now. And thanks, Glenn, for, I guess, inducing that feeling in me. I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah and belated congrats on going full time for content, too. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll see about that. I mean, it's been <laughs> it has been the wildest ride of my life, and it has been uh, under a month. <laughs> it is it is crazy it is crazy out here thank you so much glenn i really appreciate you coming on and i cannot wait to have you back on all right everybody cool. for uh for twitter's got at brendan apg at glenn g-l-e-n-n underscore jones underscore at cam best ms a video version of this on you on youtube at youtube.com slash the underscore snapshot like subscribe while you're there cam anything to plug in regards to twitch before we close it out Watch my stream, subscribe to my stream, watch my YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube. No, for real. Uh, I'll be I'm streaming pretty much every day at this point. Uh, 6 p.m. I did take a break because I did like an eight hour ladder stream. So there is a day off in there. I apologize. I don't apologize. <laughs> I did an eight hour ladder stream. You got you got exactly the amount of KM content. It was just front loaded instead of evenly distributed uh, every day. 6 p.m. KM Best MS on Twitch highlights and deck guides on youtube and of course some special commentary things that i've been doing on youtube as well thank you so much for everything all of you yeah thank you all so much for listening we'll see you next week